I would like to extend a very cold welcome, so it's not to melt his, uh, um, you know, any any of the, the places that he particularly likes. Uh, Andy, why are we talking about Finland when we should be talking about Ukraine? I don't know. Do we really need any any reason to talk about Finland? Not in this place. Yeah, I thought so. But I mean, uh, I think one of the uh, one of the things is that uh, if you uh, even take a cursory cursory uh, glance at uh, at Finnish military history, you will find uh, strange and uh, uh, mo- multiple, many and varied similarities between uh, between Finnish military historic events and uh, the ones happening in Ukraine. I think that was the uh, that was what we uh, discovered to our uh, huge amazement amazement uh, back uh, back when I when we were discussing this topic for the first time at length. That was oh lord, over what? six months ago. Oh geez, half a year. Wow. Uh, did you have the map? Yes, it is up in the nest. Yes. So. Uh, Basically, what I what I'm going to do is that uh, uh, there are three parts to this, or uh, uh, four, how however you want to take it. First of all, there is a small bit of historic background going over the opposing forces and uh, basic geography, and then uh, just going through the uh, the various uh, key points along the uh, Finnish. Soviet border. Uh, the map should be now up, up in the nest, so we will uh, go through the uh, events and the geography from uh, from north to south, so that you get uh, a basic uh, understanding of uh, what took place. And uh, I will try to uh, at least uh, uh, when I'm s- switching from a different place to to another that. Uh, Maybe uh, there's uh, Dome and Axel or Tim can uh, uh, poke me with some questions. And uh, also, uh, that's a, always a good time to make sure that I'm still talking to an audience instead of just myself. Because I believe last time there was one point where I talked only with myself for like 15 minutes before I figured out that uh, I had been Twitter poxed. Well, hopefully uh, we have been immunized against that, and hopefully that's not going to happen. Um, and we're going to be doing some some tie-ins with some, you know, let's say somewhat comparable events that happened in Ukraine, or maybe things that we might expect could be of use useful lessons um, yeah. for the Ukrainian military of today. Because again, those uh, um, similarities are palpable indeed. Um, so if you want to follow along, uh, Antti put that link to a Pinterest set of maps up in the nest, so we're not infringing any copyrights. Um, if you want to follow along a little bit, maybe good to do it on a computer because they're quite detailed and you can zoom in better. But other than that, um, Antti, take it away. Um, Winter War. When, when are we? When are we talking about? When, when did? When did this start? So, uh, Winter War itself took place from 30th of November 1939 to uh, the 13th of uh, March 1940, so 105 days. Uh, Ukraine has surpassed that uh, many times over by now. 
But uh, before we get to the war itself, there are a couple of events uh, that we we need to discuss and also that you get a sense of the opposing forces. So uh, to begin with, uh, there were already in 1938 uh, some unofficial feelers put out by the Soviet Union that they wanted to discuss certain concrete issues regarding the Finnish-Soviet border, meaning that uh, they wanted to move it. And uh, the Finnish... uh, reply and uh, it it was basically a bit lackluster because uh, there was no trust whatsoever and there was also no realism whatsoever in the aspect of uh, Finns giving up terrain even if some of it might be compensated uh, in in other parts of the border but basically uh, the Soviet Union wanted uh, part of the Karelian Isthmus and also some islands from the Gulf of Finland so these so-called uh, Yartsev talks led to nowhere, but uh, then we get closer uh, to the uh, actual World War, where in August of 1939 there was this little, little thing called uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which basically gave uh, both Hitler and Stalin free reign to do as they wished, and uh, in short form this led to uh, Various excuses made up by the the Kremlin to invite all of the Baltic uh, nations to uh, basically uh, negotiate in Moscow in lieu of military threats and uh, other other grave uh, insinuations and uh, provocations, and uh, these basically led to the loss of independence in these countries. And uh, next on the chopping block was Finland. And uh, by this time, we're reaching out to October of 1939. So the Finns had a pretty good idea what was coming. Uh, so our armed forces were mobilized and were able to uh, exercise and hold, hold maneuvers and also fortify the border regions for about a month. And then uh, the negotiations were broken off and uh, no results were basically made because, once again, the Soviets wanted terrain that the Finns were unwilling to give. And uh, after that, shortly after, there were explosions in this little tiny village of Mainila, close to the Finnish border on the Soviet side. And uh, the Soviets immediately blamed that the uh, treacherous Finns had fired artillery to, to Russia and caused severe damage and casualties though the Finnish border guards were quick to note that there were mortar rounds fired from the Soviet side because the Finnish had specifically withdrawn their artillery out of range from the border because they had an inkling that something like this might take place. Uh, So, with regard to the armed forces, uh, Finnish military at the time was uh, roughly 290,000 men that would rise with uh, various uh, additions to its peak at around 340,000 men, whereas the Russian forces uh, were about half a million at the beginning of the war and about a million at the end of it. So uh, there is a bit of a difference there. And also the Finnish uh, uh, Air Force was just over 100 planes that were at least somewhat modern, whereas the Russians, or sorry, the Soviets, 
had uh, almost 4,000 planes. And uh, the Finns at this stage had about 400 artillery pieces of uh, varying caliber and modernity. And uh, the, the Soviets had, uh, just in the Karelian Isthmus, when they were uh, focusing their artillery fire to break down Finnish defenses, they had 4,000 artillery pieces at, at the most. So uh, the Soviet military, though it was large, it was well equipped with tanks, artillery and airplanes. It had been severely already attrited from the top down because uh, Stalin had uh, uh, done these purges. Basically, everyone that there was uh, like uh, the whole general corps, the, the officer corps, it was weeded out. And uh, basically, this meant that uh, divisional commanders, army corps commanders, army commanders, all, all the way down to uh, company commanders, there was a dearth of professionalism. And also, there were political officers who had a say in military decisions, which is always a good idea. So, how many um, officers and commissars did Finland have? Well, it, this is a really hard number to explain, but uh, I think the key indicator is zero. No. Numbers were in front of the zero. No, it's just not niente. Oh, it's zero. Null. Zero. Yes, no political officers in the Finnish military. Good that you brought that at Odom. And I also know now that I'm still connected, which is always a bonus. So on the Finnish side, the military, uh, there were some problems with equipment. There weren't enough rifles there weren't there wasn't enough artillery though i suppose there was just enough pieces but uh, the quality varied a lot but the most uh, critical aspect was that there wasn't nearly enough artillery ammunition uh, anti-tank weaponry was also severely lacking as well as anti-aircraft capability and uh, i think one uh, key aspect is that uh, the prime minister just before the war actually was made immortal by the mere fact that uh, uh, quite a few Finnish troops were uh, mentioned that they were using the model Kajander uh, army clothing, which basically meant that they were wearing their own civilian clothes, an allusion to the prime minister who wasn't that interested in uh, Upping military expenses, uh, but uh, what we did, what our military did lack in uh, equipment, we uh, more than made up for in high morale, uh, mobility, especially in winter conditions. Finns really, really knew how to uh, move about in the forest in the winter, especially at that time. That's uh, luckily still. Uh, also. This uh, advantage would only grow as the uh, weather condi conditions would grow harsher. And also, uh, the terrain was intimately familiar to us, both both to the uh, uh, all aspects of the military, but uh, especially uh, with artillery. All all 
parts of the border zones were pre-mapped for artillery so that uh, what fire could be brought down was done so effectively. Uh, now, if we, uh, if you guys have the map, uh, there are a couple of uh, geographic points I want to note. One is that uh, from the north, if you go down from uh, Petsamo, Salla, uh, all the way basically up to Ilomansi and Tolvajärvi, which is uh, near the uh, tag group Talvela in the map, that terrain is basically quite, quite severe wilderness. That's apart from a couple of roads, that's just forests uh, where any movement of large bodies of troops is very, very difficult, which meant that uh, Soviet advances and movements of troops were combined to roads only because they were uh, unable to move otherwise in, in their heavily mechanized uh, mechanized uh, force, force structures. So but if we go to Lake Lagoda, you will know that there is some semblance of uh, road ne network even on this map, meaning that there was some more options for, uh, for more advanced en masse. But still, these were really small roads. You, there, are, there were no highways, none whatsoever. Uh, and if you, but if you, we go to the Karelian Isthmus, just north of Leningrad and south of Weiborg, that, that has been across the centuries the traditional route of invasion, both from uh, west to east and east to west. So this was basically the only place along the entire frontier where large forces could maneuver with armor. Uh, that is, if you had actual competency to do that. So this is where the bulk of the fighting and also the bulk of uh, offensive operations and Finnish defensive measures were aimed at. And uh, also small note is that uh, around this time, when the, when the war started, there was still some free uh, water in the Gulf of Finland. So there was some uh, small maneuverings by, by naval forces, but other than that, the uh, Gulf of Finland soon froze over and there was very little action on the seas. Uh, yes, so that is basically uh, the historic background, the terrain, opposing forces, Domen. Any questions? I think there might be a question from Wardago. Yeah, uh, hi Antti, thanks hey. for that fantastic uh, intro. Uh, hi from Ukraine. Uh, it matched in a way that a couple of weeks before the uh, before 24th of February, I exactly finished reading fantastic book uh, 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 from uh, Mr. Mannerheim called his Memoirs, and I started reading that book as uh, like a book about the war, but I really finished reading that book about everything about hunting, about traveling experience. Fantastic! I would really uh, recommend a lot. Uh, one feeling 
I had during reading that book and I would like uh, to ask you about is I had a feeling that after 1918 uh, when uh, Finnish people uh, did a lot in order to fight the Russians for one of the one of the times not the first but one of the times and not not the last one unfortunately as the history is showing but uh, after uh, 1918 i had a feeling that entering the the winter war uh, mannerheim was writing in his memoirs that uh, russia the uh, finland army did not uh, put all the efforts preparing for that war despite the fact that all the military were alerting that war would happen and the job 1915 was not finished uh, what is your idea on that yes well there there are several aspects to this one was that uh, because um, russia back then was also engulfed in its own civil war uh, still in the early 20s it actually was only in the early 30s where the uh, the Soviet military uh, grew up to be to be any sort of uh, external threat but uh, there was also the case that uh, Finland because we had just had uh, our civil war where uh, where Russia had had played a part as well uh, we were in, internally still reeling from that that war and it took us basically the, the two decades of peace to to knit society together that there that there was a it, that it was a united finland that uh, that the soviet union faced when it when it did invade in 1939 so even though and as i i said also the finnish military budgets were not they weren't nearly enough to prepare for a uh, for war on this scale but uh, it's been often stated by here's historians of that period that uh, uh, the the efforts the funds the focus went into uh, building a democracy a functioning democracy from uh, of a of a fractured nation that had just become independent and uh, i think even though it's clear that we should have put more effort into our military, into procurement, into training, uh, still a lot of very valuable work was done. We basically created our own doctrine of warfare out of nothing. There were many highly successful experiments and uh, trials to create the sort of equipment that would suit our terrain, our style of uh, fighting. But uh, still, I would say that on the whole, it was much more important to uh, use the time and resources to uh, to strengthen the the national fabric instead of just strengthening the military. Because uh, w- there are so many examples in history, e- even though if, if even if a military is uh, equipped and armed to the hilt. If it's not strong internally, if it doesn't have a will to fight, then all the equipment in the world is meaningless. Thank you for that. No worries. Uh, Doman, Tim, Axel, any anything else to note before uh, we continue? Here, Andy, we can we can we can draw the first parallels. 
with uh, with Ukraine today, right? Over the last eight years, eight years preceding the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a lot was done to build up the you know societal fabric. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, with regard to the uh, the build-up, also of the uh, events just before the war, the uh, creation of a of a cause for war for a, for any sort of uh, pretext uh, that that is also i mean in the case of the uh, genocidal invasion of ukraine there were several different options that were tried but uh, then uh, western intelligence agencies publicized all of them beforehand so they had to move to the next one but in case of uh, this particular war, uh, they only only had one excuse, and they they used it. But still, it's the same same mo. Uh, also, a sort of territorial yeah. demands, right? Yeah, That's good good example as well. Um, Wendy, yeah. do you have a question for Antti, or can we, uh, or shall we move on to uh, the first phase of the work? Uh, thanks, Dermot. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Antti. I was just wondering how did. Um, how did Finland uh, manage to overcome the huge discrepancy in terms of numbers uh, regarding the, the, the air force? Um, was, was this negated by the conditions and the terrain or, or something else? Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I think the previous time I did this presentation, not much focus did go into the air war because there was so much to discuss just in the land operations. But uh, uh, definitely one aspect was quality there we there was heavy emphasis in uh, in pilot training and even though the uh, the number of modern fighter aircraft was pitiful uh the finnish pilots were very skilled and uh, they had uh, i would say given their performances they had even more more of a moral edge over the adversaries than uh, then uh, on the ground because uh, there have there have been several instances uh, recorded that uh, whenever uh, russian uh, or so, sorry soviet uh, bombers encountered even a single finnish fighter airplane they would dump their uh, bombs and flee immediately so uh, even though most of finland there was actually no fighter cover uh, at all at at some times but uh, even just uh, a single Finnish fighter aircraft, if it uh, if it turned up, uh, there would be a mass flight of uh, Soviet bombers to the rear. So uh, I would say that it's uh, it's it's a question of uh, quality. And uh, like also, there's there's another very clear parallel to this current war is that. Uh, uh, the Soviet Air Force did support their uh, land operations to an extent, uh, but uh, I think most still quite heavily they uh, emphasized on bombing civilian targets. Uh, and in, in the case of Finland at this time, especially, uh, that was uh, difficult to begin with because uh, Beyond a couple of cities in the south of Finland, like uh, like Helsinki, Turku, Tampere, Viipuri, there, there weren't that many cities that were really what you might call 
centers of population. Most of Finland was uh, was countryside. So so basically, uh, Finland was not a good target for a terror bomb bombing campaign to begin with, and the Soviet Air Force was, uh, though numerous, it was ineptly handled. And uh, just like we're seeing in this current war, uh, combined arms operations weren't really something that the uh, Soviet armed forces were capable, at least to a to to a majority of uh, of this war. So yeah. Uh, any other questions? I think it's time to uh, to go on, Antti. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, if you guys have the map from uh, from the nest up, uh, let's go all the way north to this uh, one dot called Petsamo, which was uh, Finland's uh, only harbor in the north at the time. And uh, over here, at the beginning of the war, the, the Russians uh, advanced. They made uh, a naval landing and also advanced through to a single road, and there was only a company of Finns stationed at, at this entry point, and only a couple of uh, really ancient artillery pieces. Uh, they delayed the enemy forces as much as they could, then retreated. And uh, well, if you've ever, ever been to Lapland, especially in, in winter, uh, its movement is um, like it's it's total tundra. There is there's no uh, forest cover to speak of if you go that that far up north, and uh, especially given the Soviet ineptitude to uh, do anything beyond the roads, in, especially in the winter conditions, they were basically limited to this one road running uh, to the to the Betsamo from from south. So uh, when the Soviets advanced to south. Finns uh, continued delaying actions, and when the uh, weather conditions turned severe enough, uh, the Red Army advance basically stopped. And uh, the Finns did get some reinforcements there. I think the uh, total force structure was something akin to a battalion, and also uh, there were uh, constant attriting uh, uh, actions in the uh, in the Soviets' rear, so that. Uh, their supply would be diminished, and also their will to advance as well. And uh, basically, the Finns were able to establish a uh, single position on the on the main road, and uh, with continuous patrol actions in the uh, Red Army's rear, they were able to keep the uh, front line there for the entire war. So nothing much came from from this after that. So uh, and. Uh, are there any questions here, or should I continue? Can you tell us more about the naval landing? Because there aren't that many successful amphibious landings in history, are there? No, but uh, the thing was that uh, Finns knew what was coming. So, uh, and this is important uh, as well throughout the front, is that the civilian population was pre-evacuated. Uh, like 99.9% uh, .9 of, of the populace was removed and all structures that could be were destroyed so that uh, the Red Army wouldn't have any sort of uh, protection from the elements, which is really important in wintertime. So when when the uh, 
Red Army did do its naval landing operations. Uh, the Finns weren't, they didn't even attempt to stop the naval landing, landings because they knew they couldn't be able to. So basically what they did was they, they fired as many rounds from the, from the two ancient cannons that, as they did, and they used as much smaller arms fire as they could. And then safely retreated before uh, the Soviet forces were able to organize themselves uh, on the shore. But uh, I mean, there. Besides that, there isn't really much. It wasn't, you know, uh, what you might call a finished operations op operation from the Soviet side either. But uh, there was not no catastrophes like, uh, for instance, the Italians had when they. Uh, when they landed in Albania in 19, 1940, where you know even a cursory resistance would have uh, crossed extensive chaos, in addition to the you know traffic jam that there was there anyway. Uh, anything else? How significant the report was this for Finland? Sorry, I didn't get that. How, how, how significant of a port was this for Finland? Yes, so for Finland, uh, it was very significant because uh, it was, this was the only direct uh, trade route in the north. Uh, only, only, only port that Finland had, and it was a, it was a source of pride for Finland that they had built this uh, good road all the way to Petsamo, and uh, that there was a there was trade there, uh, there was fishing, fishing there, but most, most importantly, there was a uh, nickel mine at Petsamo, which was, uh, which continued to be a, a strategic uh, economic target uh, throughout World War II. That was worth highlighting. Yeah. So uh, onwards, Mike check. Loud and clear. Okay, excellent. Uh, so yeah, let's go a bit south. Uh, we come to Salla, where the Soviets advanced uh, in a divisional strength, and there was a uh, small uh, Finnish concentration of force to uh, first uh, delay the advance, which was, as you might imagine, again roadbound, and. Uh, there was enough of a force of Finns there to begin with that uh, after uh, delaying actions, they were able to establish a uh, clear line of defense that uh, withstood throughout the entire war. So nothing, nothing dramatic happened there, even though, and this is also a key point uh, as, as we continue down south, is that the Finns had done extensive military planning throughout the border so that they, they knew the uh, the focal points where the offensive, offensive operations would take place. But what did surprise them throughout was that uh, the Soviets had built more roads and more infrastructure on their side of the border so that they could concentrate more forces there that the Finns uh, were, had planned for. So the scale was a surprise, even though the operations themselves weren't. And uh, if we go due south more, 
we come to Somos Solvi, which Andy, uh, when yeah, did the Soviets yeah. start constructing those roads? Uh, you know what I'm trying was, to get, right? How how well yes. ahead was this planned? I mean, it was. Uh, to be honest, I don't remember the specific point. I have read about it, but uh, it's not something that's that often gets that much much attention. Besides the offensive operations themselves, but there was there was months and months, probably. I'm I'm probably gonna be budgeted by this from the Finnish Twitter sphere, but it was I would say that uh, it would it would have taken a couple of years. So basically, when there were these first uh, signs of uh, interest in some some sort of border arrangements, uh, I would say that the preparations for uh, for these infrastructure had had started back then. Because it, it takes, especially in the, in the high north, it takes time to build roads, especially in, given the equipment of the time. Okay, so yeah. just a few years, you'd say at least like 1937. Yeah, 1937, 1938. But so, someone's gonna, someone's bound to uh, know no precise, more precise answer for that. But uh, yeah, it it there was premeditation. And I think what's that's, a parallel we can draw there? Actual ammo dumps, would that be a good parallel to draw? Sorry, what? I just fed the dog, I apologize. Oh, uh, I, I, we were just talking with Antti, right, about the the Russians building roads in Sale, or across the border from Sale, um, yes. you know, years ahead of time. A parallel with Ukraine could be perhaps, say, the um, the ammo dumps in Ukraine, as well as in Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, that went going up in flames ahead of. Uh, 2022, right? In 2015, oh, 16, oh, yeah. 17, 18, 19. Would that be a good parallel perhaps to draw? One, I mean, the, the, the Russians did a few more things, but yes, absolutely. I mean, the bombings which started literally, what, seven years ahead, because they knew that they had to have, um, they knew that they had to attract the pen, potential defense capacity of uh, Ukraine in case of an invasion. Absolutely. Andy. Going going south, so so Salad, yeah. that's around around Kemiadovy as well, right? There, there are big yeah. battles there, quite. Uh... The defensive battles, but nothing, nothing, uh, dramatic, really dramatic happened there. The Finns were able to contain the uh, the, the Red Army spearheads there without uh, uh, any sort of crisis forming. And uh, but uh, Solomon Salmi, uh, if we go there on the map, and there is actually. Uh, uh, if you're looking at the same same map from the from the nest, there is even a, a more detailed version of that. Uh, but the basic outline was that uh, as 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 it was northern 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 still up in here as well, uh, there was a Finnish delaying force on the border, uh, which uh, tried to uh, as best as it best as it could delay the uh, the Red Army advance. But here, here was one one key place where uh, the Red Army had concentrated more forces than uh, was envisioned by the by the Finns. So uh, that the, an entire division would uh, try and use this one one real really small dirt road to advance was uh, was a surprise. So the Finns had to withdraw more quicker than uh, than they envisioned, and uh, the the Red Army was actually able to uh, to take. 
this uh, the village uh, center of uh, Somosalmi before uh, the Finns uh, sent substantial uh, reinforcements uh, that uh, eventually were the size of a understrength division, or, or though the, there were only like a couple of batteries of light artillery, but still it was a force to, rec- to be reckoned with. And uh, here the Finns uh, once again did uh, what they were most adept at doing, so that uh, they uh, started con- continuously uh, striking at the uh, flank and rear of the uh, of the Red Army forces. Uh, they fixed them in place as much as they could. They cut up uh, supply connections on this one road. And uh, essentially what they did was that they fixed the, the first enemy division in place and short, uh, slowly but surely uh, ground it to dust. And uh, it was uh, basically this one single division, uh, when it was, uh, when its advance no longer uh, uh, was able to go forward. It, it did signal that there was trouble afoot, so the uh, the Red Army sent in another division to uh, to assist and try to get the offensive moving, moving again. But uh, what instead happened was that uh, uh, there were enough blocking positions built between uh, this uh, spearhead division and the 44th that was coming after it that uh, they were unable to assist each other whatsoever. And uh, they were both defeated and destroyed piecemeal. So uh, this was basically one of the uh, most legendary uh, uh, battlefield victories of the entire war that uh, uh, scrappy Finns uh, on skis were able to destroy two divisions that had strong armor elements and were totally motorized and uh, even had uh, ba- military bands with them so that when they uh, when they advanced uh, across uh, Finland to uh, to Oulu and cut Finland in half that they would hold a big parade and uh, you know uh, sing great songs but uh, instead they wound up as uh, frosted meat on the side of the road. Did, and, did uh, they bring parade uniforms? Uh, yes, 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 they did. But I, I, I think that uh, having a band is much more important than just the parade uniforms. Would you, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, probably. Axel, did the did the Russians bring a band with them or just parade uniforms? So they went on Kiev. Uh, we on their three-day special operation. We are not aware of the band this time around. But then again, don't you must not forget that they sent uh, pretty much all their uh, paratroopers from, and shock troops on Pskov. And, uh, at that point in time, this would have included, uh, the second, uh, Red Army choir, uh, sorry, the second now, <laughs> the Russian Army choir from Pskov as well, because they are part of the paratroopers. So, you could say they had the people there to sit. Well, and then the, the fat lady sang, right? Yeah, and I, I think, one aspect I, I might note, uh, just a detail on how these operations worked, was that uh, uh, the Finns would uh, have patrols up to up to a company strength, where they would, uh, uh, especially during night, uh, use the thick forests to uh, to ski 
to a close distance uh, near 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 the main artery that they were were to sever, and then they picked a spot where they would be able to create uh, barriers for movement on on both uh, both directions of the road, and they would uh, strike uh, as with as much of an element of su surprise as they could, uh, use fire and movement to secure uh, a breach site. Then they would try to uh, fortify it as quickly as possible and naturally destroying vehicles uh, and uh, creating uh, mined areas and uh, cutting down trees and uh, digging uh, digging uh, entrenchment and so forth uh, would uh, play a role here. And uh, depending on the site and their strength, they would either try to uh, create a permanent blocking position there or just retreat after they had caused all the destruction they could. I think uh, one example of this is that um, it wasn't just to cut the road, it was also to erode and attrit the, uh, the Red Army's uh, unit's uh, ability to act, was that uh, because, because the Russians, uh, sorry, the Red Army, were, were unable to uh, uh, provide enough food, provide heating to uh, to basically uh, keep up their uh, their ability to to fight in these harsh conditions we have to remember that uh, uh, at some points of this campaign the temperature would would drop as low as minus 40 which is uh, I'll tell you quite cold so uh, Especially in the beginning stages. And um, did you just be say clear, for the first for time, our American something is cold. For our American listeners, <laughs> minus forty <laughs> is the sort of temperature where it doesn't matter if it's Fahrenheit or Celsius. Okay. Yes, yes, Axel, I did say cold. Your ears you, did not deceive you. I I was just about to say because at minus fifteen, you did you tend to stop barbecuing. That I know, but. That you consider yeah. something cold is unique. Yeah. Uh, so one example I would give is that uh, the uh, Red Army would uh, build these uh, huge uh, fires because there was plenty of wood around, and they would just uh, huddle, huddle with the fires, and uh, then the pins would show up. There might be as big as a company strength element. They would find a suitable position where they could bring uh, as much uh, uh, fire fire down on these fi on these uh, uh, camping fires as they could, and then they would uh, blast the these uh, huddled up uh, forces with as as much strength as, as they could, and there is at least a couple of instances where the because the um, the Red Army forces didn't know where the fire was coming from. It was, uh, you know, it was coming all around. Was uh, it kind of like the Battle of Karantsebes? I would hesitate to say yes. In, but... in, the, in, the, simple, in the simple sense, Antti, that there was uh, a lot of instances then of friendly fire yeah. among the yeah. Soviet troops. Yeah. So even after, in, in this case, even after the Finns retreated, after they had expended their ammunition, they would still hear fire, uh, sounds of fighting because the, uh, the the Russians had started firing on themselves because they both thought that they were the enemy, which is, you know, in this case, 
fitting, entirely fitting. So, uh, so the basic end result was here was that uh, two Soviet divisions were destroyed, and uh, the Finns were uh, able to redeploy parts of their forces due south where they needed the extra reinforcement. And also, uh, uh, one aspect I would like to note is that uh, uh, during the latter stages of the Winter War, Swedes provided uh, a strong force of volunteers, fully equipped with uh, aircraft, anti-tank guns, anti-air guns, and they basically took over frontline front responsibilities in the north of Finland so that the Finns could uh, redeploy their own forces to south. So, uh, Sweden hey, assisted... Hey, Sverige. Exakt. Can you talk a bit about the, you said aircraft, um, can you talk a yes. bit about the, um, because when highlighting how these two divisions and, and the Russians were literally lured in and seemingly failed to see what they were getting into. Today we have drones, uh, the Russians failed to have aircraft, helicopters, water, but we have drones for scouting. In between the winter war and today, we would have seen aircraft doing reconnaissance and the likes. Uh, we would probably use satellites to clear positions. At that time, the Russians had a few puny aircraft. How did the scouting happen? Who scouted how? And why did the Finns be, I mean, why were they so superior? Well, to begin with, you have to understand was that uh, as, as the decision was made in the Kremlin to invade Finland, I, I don't think this is a key point to make, and uh, I'm glad you asked about it, is that uh, uh, there, were, there was a severe misconception in the Kremlin that uh, when the Soviet forces would uh, invade, that it would be a parade march, so that the Finns might put up a desultory amount of resistance, they might fire a few shots, but then they would meekly surrender and uh, uh, become a part of the glorious uh, Soviet Union, even up to the point that there was a uh, uh, mock-up uh, Finnish-Soviet state created in the small village of Terioki in the Karelian Isthmus, uh, which, uh, which basically, after it, it had been taken, uh, the uh, old communists from the Civil War era that had fled to, uh, fled to the Soviet Union came up to this small village and declare, declared the uh, People's Republic of Finland was born, and then it immediately applied for assistance from the Soviet Union. So uh, when, when there were attempts at armistices and uh, uh, trying to negotiate for peace, the Soviet Union would continue to say, continuously say that, oh, but we're not at war with Finland. We are, we have friendly relations with Finland. We're helping them to uh, make, you know, uh, create peace. Andy, quick question. When the Soviets were talking about going into Finland, what adjective did they use in their propaganda to describe the Finns with? Uh, this was also heavily influenced by the uh, the few communist Finns that were still alive after the uh, Soviet purges. So basically the propaganda during this entire war was uh, a throwback 20 years before to the civil war period. So uh, one instance is that they would actually use 
they would say that, oh, you should definitely welcome us because we will we will give you a uh, uh, you know eight eight hour work day and uh, all the all the benefits that uh, workers uh, need. But they will they would fail to notice that the that these things had already been implemented by Finland, and uh, all the rhetoric otherwise also was was of the civil war period where the uh, government forces were whites and the uh, uh, red forces were uh, you know uh, the uh, rebe- rebellious um, rebellious working working class uh, with uh, Okay, I'm not going to go into the civil war break because it uh, there's it it would require its own podcast. But uh, basically, so that they they regurgitated the same points as was that were used already 20 years before. Okay, Antti, now now answer my question. One word, adjective. What adjective did the Russian propaganda, the Soviet propaganda, use to describe Finns with? It's a color. I'll give you a hint. Oh, I see. Could, well, could be icy. I didn't think it was icy. Icy is not a color. No, no. I believe if I if I take a men- mental picture of all the propaganda posters I have seen of that period, I would say that uh, one descriptive term would be bloodthirsty. Okay. But, uh, that's not what I'm going for. Ben got it right already. Ben already already uh, got, won this one. What what is it, Auntie? What what color did they ascribe to Finns? White. Exactly. And did they mean this in a racial sense? No. No, they didn't. Right? They meant it in the same sense as when they were saying that they were fighting the white poles when the Red Army was in the doors of Warsaw, yeah. the gates of Warsaw. So I think this is another parallel that we can draw, and and, and we're going to take a little pause and go to go to some questions from the floor. But this is another parallel that we can draw. Soviet propaganda of of then, Russian propaganda of now, is obsessed with the world being against them, but especially anybody who's against them gets the same tag. That tag, for the first twenty odd years of the existence of the Soviet Union, twenty plus years, depending on you know how we define the existence. Um, was white. Why? Because that came out of the series of wars that's usually combined into a single term of the Russian Civil War. But it's much more complicated than that. Not, let, let's not go into that, because yeah. yeah. that's another podcast. Yeah. And from then, for a very long time, every opponent of the regime that um, governed the then incarnation of the Duchy of Moscovy was described with the term white, as opposed to red, right? Um, non-communist, anti-communist, as opposed to communist. There's a historical parallel now. After the Second World War, following the Second World War, the term white got replaced by the term fascist and eventually Nazi. Obviously, by um, late 1939, that was not yet replaced by the term fascist or Nazi, because what what was still very much in force then, anti well, there was this small thing called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which, which was basically an alliance between two nations. Uh, which, which nations were they, Doman? I, I believe one of them was the, was the Soviet Union. Um, the other one was Nazi Germany. 
where the two totalitarian regimes were very much friends at the time. The two big totalitarian regimes of the time were, were, were very much friends at the time. So, of course, the Soviet propaganda would not have tarred anyone with the term Nazi at the time yet, would it? Uh, because no. that would be that would be very much uh, uh, a uh, uh, you know going against their non-aggression pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, right? So instead, they were still using the term white. Whereas later on, they started describing anyone who, for whatever reason, with whatever political background, would be um, countering the, the the Muscovite regime with the term fascist and eventually and eventually Nazi. And this is where, and this is something very important. And um, if anybody wants me to, I can I can send them a nice little thread from uh, I forget Alexandra, I forget which Alexandra Porovoznik, I think, um, that, that says basically what I what I say often here. Right? The current Russian use of the word Nazi to describe Ukrainians doesn't have any of the connotations that people in the West, in the broader West. Uh, ascribe to that word. None of the political ideological connotations. The only connotation it really has is that these are people who are against the ruling Kremlin regime. These are people who are against the will of Muscovy. And very much in the same way, the white Finns, who were merely trying to stay you know, a free democratic country, were described as the white Finns, because they were going against the will of the regime that governed the Duchy of Moscovy, the then incarnation of the Duchy of Moscovy. They did not want to cede the Karelian Isthmus. They did not want to cede their second largest city, um, where have we heard that before, right, to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, uh, to the regime governing the Duchy of Moscovy. Because Vipuri was the second largest city, wasn't it, Antti? Yes. And exactly. Much like Kharkiv. Kharkiv is in, in Ukraine today, right? And this is, if you look at the maps of... Um, the, the the criminal enterprise of Novorossiya, you know, what what city was very much included in those from the start? It was, it was Kharkiv, right? It it didn't just go to the next in Luhansk in the south, but also Kharkiv Oblast further north. So you know that that's something that is well worth remembering. When Russians today say Nazi, they don't mean an, an anti-Semite totalitarian um, regime following national socialists. No, no, no. They mean people who are against Moscow. And that gets picked up, you know, wrongly so, in various Western media by people who do not understand what they mean. And I think this is another, you know, messaging parallel, perhaps that we can that we can see today. Um, Auntie, if you wish to comment, go right ahead, and then we'll go to questions from uh, uh, America, from Sweden, and from Ukraine. Um, if you're just tuning in, good morning, America. It's uh, you know 7 a.m. now, getting up to 7 a.m. on the East Coast. Um, still 4 a.m. on the West Coast. Why are you up? Um, if you're wondering what we're doing, we're, we're looking at lessons from the Finnish-Soviet winter war and then the continuation war, if we'll have some time, um, and, what le- and what parallels and lessons we can learn from that uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine as well. Because um, there are parallels aplenty, and we're doing this with our um, regular regular contributor and uh, second-time special guest, Antti Ruokonen. Um, and if you want to share that out, there's I've put a tweet in the nest up above. There's an excellent card. He actually has two cards um, because he's such a great guy. So um, join us on that. And the third tweet in the nest is a collection of maps that Andy keeps referring to. So in case you're looking for a map, it's the third tweet from the left in the nest. Um, Andy, any thoughts? And then we'll go to George. No, let's just go to questions. All right, George, shoot. Andy, good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning, uh... Doman and Axel. 
my question for you, Andy, is uh, the, the Finns obviously, you know, completely outnumbered, uh, uh, obviously in the ground. Uh, what about the air campaign? That's that's always kind of perplexed me because I know the the, the Finns had a very small air force, but um, what was what was the situation in the air? Why weren't the uh, Russians able to do anything of uh, you know of consequence in the air? Yeah, so. Uh... This partly came up already, but uh, one one is, issue is due to terrain, especially uh, as when, when you go uh, due north, is that uh, most of Finland in the border regions is uh, is dense forest, which uh, brings severe li- limitations not only to uh, to recce operations but also to uh, bombing operations with the equipment at the time, and uh, also give, given the uh, uh weather conditions uh that was still a key element uh, in military aviation at the time and uh one one other aspect is that uh there was simply skill lacking with the uh deplo- both with the uh larger deployment of the red arm red uh, air force but also with its uh, employment there was really uh, uh combined arms operations weren't really something that the Red Army was able to do at the time. Uh, when we go more due south uh, in, a, in a few moments, we will see that the uh, the Red Army was able to somewhat improve its uh, uh, ground ground uh, coordination between uh, armored uh, infantry and artillery. But uh, uh, with Air Force, uh, it, it was a different case. Uh, they they had the numbers, but uh, they they didn't have the uh, uh, the um, the skill to employ them, and uh, also they didn't have the uh, uh, conditions on the ground were not favorable to uh, to uh, larger operations. Uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, was that. Uh, uh, their bomber front force was used to uh, try and terrorize the civilian population. And uh, e- even though they did support the land-based operations, they were uh, only able to do so uh, to a certain extent in the Isthmus. But the, even there, the impact was limited. And uh, the Finnish Air Force, though it was very tiny, uh, it was still able to do enough interdiction, and there was even a tiny, tiny bomber force as well, so that uh, they were able to throw a bit of a monkey into the, uh, sorry, uh, yes, monkey, monkey wrench into the works, so that uh, they didn't have complete air dominance. But uh, it, it was more mostly uh, the fact that uh, they were able, unable to, uh, they didn't have the skill to employ them effectively. Auntie, I, I it's, it's funny. It, I mean. Not funny that you're comical. It's uh, funny and is is, uh, like and crazy that your descriptors of the Finnish uh, winter war uh, can be is plug and play for uh, the war currently, right? The Soviets, Russians not being able to use their air force effectively, and so on and so forth. It's amazing, you know, how history repeats itself and the stupidity uh, in in their uh, command continues. 
Yeah, I mean, and you have to re- remember that the 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 Red Army. It was even even after the purge, purges, the ma- main main use, obvious use for the Red Army was was a grand scale, a traditional war in in a European context. But the conditions in in fin- in the Finnish border zone were not European. It it was it was a heavily forested terrain, which it will sound ridiculous, but the, the Red Army was un, unaccustomed to operating, and uh, the, the terrain and the condition conditions placed severe retri- restrictions on what they could do and where they could where they could do it. So they they wasn't because there was no clear expectation that they would have to actually have to do any kind of serious warfare in in this area so there was no so no whatsoever ever training to uh to, to acclimatize to familiarize with the terrain it just it just wasn't there it is also fair to say george that the red army is based on an officer corps which has never fought in the northeast during the civil war they lost the remaining um troops and uh, officers who could have trained successive generations thereafter. And they got rid of all the Baltic Germans, don't forget, they had as part of both their naval and northern land army. And therefore the garrisons were fully afoot of people who had no knowledge whatsoever. Yes, um, Sorry. Yeah, it, it sounds like we're describing, remember in the 1930s, they used to have those grand parades, uh, you know, in, in front of uh, in front of the Kremlin, just like they have now. So it sounds like they sent their parade army to do a fighting of a of a, of an army that that uh, was completely untrained again. Eerily familiar. <laughs> yes, and uh, just to pile on to what Axel was saying was that they there was actually. Um, there was a sizable group of uh, Red Finns serving in the Red Army up until the purges that uh, would have been, uh, been a source of uh, local knowledge and also, uh, you know, uh, some skill, because even though they were Red Finns, they were still Finns. So, uh, but uh, these were basically, uh, with very, very tiny exceptions, uh, by the time Winter War hit, they were dead or in the uh, in the gulags in Siberia. Thomas, shall we go to Sweden, or who was next? I actually have a question from Ben, which I think is very interesting, since we raised uh, the purges. Auntie, um, were it not for the purges, was say Tuhachevsky still around, would that have made up for, you know, a lack of good communications and working radio and, and other problems that the Soviets had? Uh... Now this is this is naturally only speculation, but uh, I would say that uh, it would have made the initial planning for the campaign on the Red Army side a bit, perhaps uh, a bit more realistic. I mean, there there was uh, there were some officers uh, even back then, especially there was a uh, uh, high-ranking uh, artillery officer. Uh, who was already general rank at the time, Shaposhnikov, that uh, was very critical of the planning, but uh, uh, thankfully was overruled. 
because he was just on, only counting up the uh, amount of uh, ammunition required to, to and uh, the forces required to achieve a breakthrough on the Eastmost front, and he was already shaking his head, no, no, this this isn't gonna this isn't this isn't gonna work. So I, I would think that the, the planning would have been a bit more realistic, and also the uh, the speed at which uh, the Red Army would have uh, uh, adapted its battle plan to uh, uh, to counter Finnish movements on the ground would have been different, and also with all of the uh, some at least somewhat professional officer corps still around, uh, I would imagine that uh, the uh, the way that the forces function in the field would have would have been different as well. So. I'm not going to go out and say that the end result would have been totally different, but it would have definitely been much, much more difficult for the Finnish military to effectively uh, resist, because we have to consider that this is a 1,300-kilometer border. And uh, just just like the uh, invasion of Ukraine, there are so many axes it's hard to keep track of uh so uh that pressure if it was actually effectively employed in all those points would have been a severe issue for the Finns, definitely thank you auntie i think we lost a swede we were getting two others so that that's all right um let's go to uh andre ah well, uh, my question was, uh, since I was listening just now, we talked about uh, Baltic Germans in, and Finns in the Russian army before the revolution. So I was thinking, actually, what was the composition of the invasion army into Finland in uh, 1939 now? Like, were there Ukrainians, Belarusians, Cossacks in it? And how did it affect? the Soviet army. So yes, uh, one one uh, aspect that is quite quite famous is that uh, in the in the Salmia circumvent battles the uh, the 44th division that uh, that advanced to aid the uh, the spearheading 163rd was Ukrainian. Uh, and uh, therefore it was uh, unaccustomed to uh, to these severe conditions to begin with, though it had some experience. It had participated in the uh, Soviet uh, invasion of Poland, but uh, there was really not much fighting, and uh, the uh, circumstances were totally different. So uh, it it was uh, it was considered elite to a certain extent, but still it was uh, it was not ready for. Uh, what what lay ahead? But uh, other than that, uh, I have read of the uh, composition of forces, but there is no, there's nothing like uh, beyond the uh, 44th division. I can't pin down any other um, details that would be of uh, significance in, in the force composition. Hey, Antti, uh, War Doggo, you're back. Yeah, uh, apologize. There was some Happens. problem uh, question uh, regarding uh, if, if there is any evidence if there is any info because I didn't manage uh, to find myself uh, that uh, 
from the Soviet side there were any uh, mercenaries uh, used, uh, like for instance in many uh, conflicts uh, or in the in uh, for instance, the war in Spain, there were many uh, communists from different communist uh, countries uh, arriving to participate. There was anything similar from uh, any uh, countries apart of Soviet Union or Soviet Union was scaling, uh, was using totally the force from the occupied uh, lands, including Ukraine? Yeah, so... Uh... The, the only exception to the fact that uh, the fighting was done by regular Red Army forces without any sort of uh, quote-unquote volunteers or, or mercenaries, the one exception is that, uh, like I mentioned uh, earlier on, that there was this uh, sham republic uh, created from uh, uh, so the so-called Teriyogi government uh, uh, that was basically uh, the leadership was old Finnish uh, communists that were still alive in in the Soviet Union. Uh, this sham republic did have its own army, but it was like uh, the level of uh, you know uh, humor you have you ma- you have to uh, apply to uh, basically use the word army is quite extraordinary because. In the beginning, when they created their um, their for, for first some some kind of armed force, was that they basically looted the local military history museums and the uh, the first couple of soldiers that they had that guarded their uh, so-called government headquarters basically had uh, uh, 18th century Swedish army uniforms on. So uh, the uh, I, I'm not gonna give the give that force the, i mean later on they did get proper equipment but the military force was so minuscule that uh, as far as i can recall it was never employed in the in the in the front it was just used for uh, propaganda in the in the rear thank you so much thank you Andy. uh quick questions from pauli and glassingknopf and then we'll, we'll let you actually move on pauli yeah thank you Dilma. um and thank you on before for a really um interesting um presentation and well all the facts that you have presented i've made some notes um so um can you can you um like also briefly tell about like the um background and like the training that the finnish troops had um and by this i mean the um like the um how do i say the Home army. Yeah, like the Suojelu Skunnat. And then the uh, reserve officers, and then also the 1980 and Lockstead officers. And the, uh, like a training. You can draw some parallels to to NATO training for Ukraine. And and the uh, reserves that Ukraine now has. There are, I think, some parallels there. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Pauli. yeah, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, the uh, the Finnish armed forces uh, were constantly fighting for every every cent and dime that uh, they got into their military budget. So, uh, voluntary uh, uh, defense forces were really important in the interwar period. Uh, uh, there were basically uh, 
uh, two large organizations called the Suelluskunta, uh, which is basically like uh, what you might call a home army or a territorial army. And then there was uh, the Lotta Swerd, which was basically uh, a women's organization to uh, to support uh, to support national defense. Uh, and uh, this was basically uh, a second, what you might call a second uh, group, second sort of uh, way for the for the Finnish uh, reservists to uh, to train. So there was. Uh, even though they were in principle separate organizations from uh, from the military uh they were based, they were still uh all all the same kinds of uh, training was used uh they uh, they regularly had uh, shooting uh, contests they had uh, maneuvers uh in in the forests they had uh, skiing contests so basically they did all the kinds of activities uh, one would need to uh, maintain both physical fitness, mental toughness, and uh, also uh, it wasn't just for the common riflemen. It was they had uh, their own sections for uh, artillery. Uh, they did uh, reserve officer uh, uh, training as well to an extent, uh, and uh, they also one. One really important aspect was that these these guys who were active in in the Suojeluskunta organization, they had their own equipment and they had their own own personal arms as well. And if we consider that the military at the time had difficulty even providing uh, uniforms and uh, basic small arms to its uh, uh, forces, then these guys were really important because. Uh, they were able to uh, maintain their level. They, they had an established record of readiness. They had an uh, established record of training, of uh, trying also to uh, to innovate, like, like like the military in its training. And uh, it was basically a very important aspect of uh, how the uh, uh, abilities of the military were maintained in peacetime to the extent that they were much more prepared because even though the Finnish military did have these large-scale maneuvers that lasted for about a month where fortification efforts were done and uh, all sorts of other training occurred, uh, without the efforts put in by by the Suojeluskunta organization, but also by the Lotta Schwarz, who provided much-needed Support roles. It was all the way through to uh, uh, clothing the forces, uh, uh, sustaining, uh, uh, you know, um, food uh, food services for the troops. Uh, uh, also, all sorts of tasks tasks that supported the fighting man at the front. Uh, so many women uh, did uh, so much both in the interwar period, but also during the war itself, so that the, uh, the at the time, so that the guys could be more, uh, that there would be, because Finland at the time was a small nation, only about 3.4 million, 5 million people, and it was a large country to defend. So being able to extract as many military age 
guys to actually frontline service was imperative uh, in in that sense as well. And uh, what uh, Pauli mentioned about the uh, the Jaegers, uh, that that's one key aspect as well because when uh, uh, during the uh, during the First World War. There was a set of Finns who sought out uh, military tra- training at the Imperial German Army uh, uh, to prepare uh, an, an independent uh, nation of Finland to prepare a struggle for uh, for independence, and uh, they ha- they received uh, military training and they also received uh, frontline experience. It was the uh, Jäger Battalion 27 was the unit's name. So. Uh, these guys all received military training and experience in a in a professional army and uh, when the civil war started uh, these guys were spread out across the uh, the government forces so that they could provide uh, not only officer but also uh, experienced nco uh, assets to the military which uh, made it a much more effective fighting force than uh, than the reds in the civil war even though they had uh, uh, Russian support, but that was much more ineffective than uh, than these Finns were with their uh, German training. So uh, after the civil war, there was a there was a long period where there was a power struggle between the uh, between the older Finns who had uh, gotten uh, their uh, military uh, experience in the old Imperial Russian army. Uh, there were quite a few generals. Finnish generals who had uh, achieved that rank already in the in the Russian army, uh, and they took uh, the leadership positions uh, after uh, Finland uh, became independent. But um, after uh, this sort of uh, inside uh, tussle, uh, by the time we got to the uh, late twenties, uh, it was the younger generation of Jaeger officers who were, uh, uh, by and large, in command, and they were, uh, let's say, they they brought a uh, more youthful vigor into the fabric of the uh, Finnish armed forces. Though, even though it must be stated that these old Tsarist officers brought with them the, the ones who remained with the military and those who uh, were a part of the original build-up, they, ha- they gave the Finnish military a lot of much-needed experience because uh, I think two examples uh, could be highlighted. One is uh, Field Marshal Mannerheim, who was a uh, was a general of cavalry in the Imperial Russian Army, who ended up uh, being the um, commander in chief of uh, Finnish armed forces in in uh, all of the wars of its independence age, and also uh, general of artillery uh, Nenonen, who basically was uh, instrumental in uh, creating a Finnish artillery force which uh, legacy is still well-maintained even today. So uh, Jaegers were a key aspect. Uh, also, e- even up to the Second World War, they were quite strongly represented in the, in the officer corps, uh, because even though it's 20 years later, there were still many, many officers, uh, generals, colonels, majors, so far, serving in the armed forces. Hopefully, that uh, answers your question, Bali. Thank you. That was perfect. Thank you. 
Glass and Knopf, go ahead, and then I think we have uh, half of Finland still to cover. Glass and Knopf. Okay, thank you. And first of all, thank you to Myriad Report and uh, uh, Antti uh, with this really interesting subject once again. Uh, as a, a grand, uh, grandson and a grandson of two Swedish uh, uh, volunteers in the uh, Finnish Winter War, it's really interesting to listen to this. And actually, my question was about the impact of the yeah, yeah, Kerry troops uh, in the winter wars, but actually you just answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, no worries. Well, th that's what we call efficiency, don't we, Antti? Um, right, where were we? Yeah. we were, did we get to Tolvajarvi yet? I don't think so, right? No, no, we didn't. Uh, so, uh, before all these questions, uh, we were at Storm of Salmi, where the uh, word motti was first uttered by uh, by the international press, which uh, basically is um, uh, the Finnish word uh, motti means basically a cubic meter of uh, firewood that's been all cut up and nice, nicely put into uh, round piles. Uh, and this uh, henceforth was um, so. Are you saying mentioned... you can? Are you saying you can circle a cube? Yes, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So this term was hereafter referred to uh, Finnish uh, encirclement tactics. Uh, the basic, basically, uh, a smaller, more mobile, uh, better. Uh, Led force being able to uh, move or move around uh, a superior force force that uh, is less mobile and less able to uh, act in the battlefield and uh, finally uh, cut it up and destroy it. Uh, that wasn't probably particularly uh, professional wording for that process, but uh, I think we'll leave it at that. So. Uh, if we go a bit, if you now have still the, the map from from the nest uh, of the Winter War front line, we are now at uh, go, going south from Suomussalmi. We are getting to Kuhmo, and uh, here, uh, like due north, uh, there was a, a Red Army force, a divisional strength, uh, advancing uh, towards Finland. Uh, but uh, luckily, uh, in this in this instance, uh, this is basically along the same lines as at Salla, so that the Finnish forces at the border uh, delayed the uh, the Red Army uh, advancing troops uh, enough so that they could establish uh, a solid uh, defensive line, and uh, they were able to hold it. And there was even there were attempts at encircling. Uh, the uh, the Soviet force, but uh, uh, the Finns simply didn't have the strength uh, to uh, effect an effective encirclement. So uh, basically, the front here was uh, devoid of any, uh, shall we say, critical uh, uh, dramatic events uh, that would affect uh, the rest of the front line. So uh, there isn't much else to talk there. But uh, now. We are getting to the uh, first sort of uh, crisis event of the war for the Finns. If we go uh, down from Ilomansi, where the uh, Finns were able to uh, act similarly to, to the north, where they could uh, delay the enemy forces and then 
uh, establish a uh, solid front. Uh, it was a different um, story. Oh, sorry, before I go there, uh, any questions or should I move forward? No, let, let's move forward before, yeah. we get, okay. uh, before we get bogged down. Yeah. Uh, so at Tolvajarvi, uh, the situation was a bit similar to, to what occurred at, uh, at Suomussalmi. So the, the Finns were prepared and did uh, do delaying, delaying action at the border. But uh, here, in addition to the fact that the Red Army forces were larger, uh, they were apparently a slight, slightly better led, slightly more aggressively led. And, uh, and on the Finnish side, uh, the commander of the uh, defending forces wasn't quite up to the, uh, shall we say, to the uh, mental uh, uh, strength that uh, he should have been. Uh, so e even though the Finns were able to de delay the enemy advance, they were unable to hold it. And uh, thus, uh, uh, a change of command was required, and also uh, uh, reinforcements. Uh, General uh, Pavel Talavella took over here, and uh, basically, within uh, there was uh, the first uh, reinforcement for regimental sized, uh, but they got some more in the in, after, soon after, and uh, they were basically. Uh, able to find because the problem in this situation is that if you look at the map you will see that the road after Tolvajarvi uh, uh, basically there's there's an intersection where you can go do north and also do south now and if you look at that place you will realize that if the red army had been able to reach that point they would have been able to flank both the forces defending Ilomansi but more crucially the forces defending the uh, main line at the Lake Lakota, and also given enough time and uh, strength, they would have been able to outflank the main, main defensive lines on the Karelianismos. So it was really important that the enemy did not advance too deep on this road network, even though these are like small dirt roads, but uh, since there wasn't anything else that was just enough for the uh, the heavily road-bound uh, Red Army forces to be able to maneuver forward. So in some of the heaviest fighting yet up to that point, uh, the Finns were able to first stop the uh, the Red Army advance, and they were slowly able to beat it back. Uh, there, was, uh, there was some very heavy fighting and heavy casualties also on the Finnish side. Uh, the main sort of uh, uh, center of resistance when the Finns uh, really started to get their counterattack going was this r rather large newly built uh, uh, hotel structure. Uh, I believe it was two or three stories and it went, because it was built of solid uh, wood logs it was impervious to small arms fire and the Finns as I noted earlier on they didn't really have much in the way of artillery so they basically had to use, in lieu of artillery, they have to use heavy machine guns as, as supporting fires. So uh, uh, they basically had to go about it uh, at the end, man against man. And they, uh, they were able to uh, defeat the enemy, enemy enemies attacking spearheads there and finally to establish 
a uh, solid front close to the border. So this, when the news of this uh, defensive victory started permeating within Finland, that was a really important step because up to that point it had been just delaying action and retreat. But this was the first instance that uh, Finnish forces, though outnumbered, were able to uh, solidly defeat the Red Army forces in the field, which gave hope to everyone else all along, all across the front lines. And uh, now, if we go, oh, sorry, uh, is there? Should we move forward, Doman? I, I think maybe at this point, right? Let, let's find the let's find the parallel for a similar event that we've seen over the past you know, eight and a half months. Any any suggestion? Well, I mean. Uh, the scale is vastly different, but uh, I would say that the Battle of Kiev was was probably the uh, the surest, most substantial sign that the uh, Moscovy forces uh, could be defeated. Although even previous to that, there was the uh, the, the failure of uh, VDV at, at a certain airport. On the very first day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Andy. Uh, good. Let's, uh, let's, let's push on. Let's push on. Yeah. I'm sure okay. that many more questions will be generated. Yeah. So uh, if we move a bit south from Tolvajärvi uh, on the map, uh, we will come upon the uh, uh, shore, shore of Lake Lagoda. And uh, this countryside which was still heavily okay, forested sorry. but yeah. how did you call the name of the lake lagoda is that the same as lake ladoga yeah yeah sorry is it are lagoda. both spellings optional no because because i have i i don't actually have dyslexia but with specific yeah words, the, I the thing, yes yes the problem is that in, in finnish it's called ladoka so uh so my my finnish tongue uh Makes it easier for me to say Lagoda, even though it's uh, aha. Okay. Actually, in this in this instance, I'm not totally sure. But uh, let's just go with the fact that I'm saying it wrong, and uh, let's move on. Right. <laughs> no, just just use the Finnish name. How about you? Just use the Finnish name all, all okay. the time, and well, then and then, yeah, yeah. and then you you then you are the arbiter of what is right, not me. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think that's giving me way, way too much power. But in, in any case, let's let's move on. Uh, so this area, if we if you look on the uh, northern lake of Lake Ladokka, uh, thanks for that, Doman. Uh, you'll find that there is, uh, even though the map is a bit unclear, uh, the terrain is becoming slightly less forested. I mean, there's still heavy forests there, but there is also more of a uh, shall we say, a network of roads, even though they are still small dirt roads, there's a there's slightly more of them. And there is always also these uh, more, more of these small villages there. So that uh, even though the fin Finnish did uh, torch any any um, any building that might be of any any assistance to the invading army, uh, there were still more roads, which meant that the uh, the Soviet Soviet forces uh, had more of a uh, room to maneuver there, and uh, even though there, especially in this part of the frontier, there were clear pre-war plans made that uh, 
when uh, the opposing forces would advance al along these roads towards Sortavala, that uh, Finns would first delay them and then uh, outflank them from the north and uh, fix them in place and destroy them. But the issue here was that, uh, like on other parts of the front, uh, the Soviet forces were much more, they, they were much strong, stronger than the Finnish planners had anticipated. So uh, the Finnish delaying actions, even though they were successful, they they did have to withdraw just a bit too quickly, and the uh, the Red Army forces were just a bit too strong, so that the, when the Finns did start their flanking maneuvers, they they weren't as prepared as they would have liked to have been, and the opposing forces were a bit too strong, and they didn't have because let's. If we go back to the beginning, the Finns didn't have enough artillery support. They were outnumbered. Uh, they were missing anything above rifles, part, part of the forces. So they were able to, and this is, this is the important part, they were able to uh, fix the enemy. These were basically two Red Army divisions and a supporting uh, brigade of armor. They were able to fix them in place. They were able to encircle them. This place was actually uh, uh, the most, uh, shall we say, uh, most the abundant region of the entire frontier. There were approximately 12 of these encirclements uh, created in this area. Uh, the biggest held an entire division. Uh, the smallest were like uh, regiment side, size or even a bit smaller. Uh, and uh, the Finns were actually now presented with a problem because they didn't have enough forces to uh, to, de to destroy these encirclements. Uh, so they were forced to uh, put only the smallest amount of uh, forces to try and defend against uh, uh, Soviet attempts to relieve these encirclements, and then use try and use the maximum amount of force to uh, try and destroy one encirclement at a time. But uh, because they didn't have artillery enough, they didn't have armor support at all in this sector of the front, uh, and they didn't have enough anti-tank weaponry. Uh, basically, these, these uh, Red Army forces, when they were encircled, they would, they would basically fortify their positions as well as they could. And remember, these guys had Motors, they had artillery, they had armor, they had uh, even anti-aircraft uh, guns because naturally the Finnish Air Force was really, really small. They didn't really need them. So they, they could be employed in uh, anti-ground operations so that they, they would basically create these mini forts, which the Finns had oftentimes problems to uh, to destroy, especially the largest one of these salients, because it was actually right next to the Alatokajärvi, and here is where the Red, Ar Red Air Force actually was able to do its job, because they, uh, at this time of the year, the lake was completely frozen over, so they could actually land, they could actually build a small airstrip, and they could actually, in some conditions, they could even 
uh, land planes there, and when they couldn't, they could drop supplies from airplanes. And uh, they could also, even though the Finns tried to interdict it, they could also try and get supplies in through the ice. So they would be these uh, uh, sledge-driven and also uh, uh, motorized columns that would try to resupply resupply the this one big encirclement. So at the end, the Finns were able to destroy with with all the effort they could muster. They could destroy most of these encirclements, but not not all of them, including this one huge divisional sized encirclement so uh, they couldn't um they couldn't use the forces from here to uh, uh, reinforce their troops on the Karelian isthmus when uh, the most significant battles were taking place there so this was uh, what you might call uh it was it was not a complete Finnish success story, only in only in the aspect that they were able to stop the Red Army advance, but they weren't able to decisively defeat them and thus release forces for further use down south. So that is basically the uh, whole of the front handled up to Lake Laatokka. Uh, Domen. Excellent. Okay. So, um, how many, let's say, Karelian Isthmus is to the south of Lake uh, Latoka, right? How yeah. many Russian troops, Soviet troops, were committed to the north of Lake, or, or to, to the north of the Big Lake, let's call it the Big Lake, or the Dnipro, the Big River? How many, how many were committed to the north of the Big Lake? So... Uh... If we if we are just looking at the uh, the main sort of big sector just north of of the lake, we're talking about about nine divisions and one ar- armored brigade. And how many did they commit to the south of the big lake in the narrow Karelian isthmus? But which you you know so aptly described, but not quite as the as the invasion highway uh, into Finland. Yes, yeah, so, th- so there were about twelve divisions and. Uh, seven armored brigades there though the these forces would be uh constantly reinforced especially after the time that the even the red army figured out that they weren't able to able to achieve a at least a quick breakthrough anywhere north of the lake Ladoka. so they by that stage they concentrated all the forces that they could muster to to the karelian isthmus so they could achieve a breakthrough there Okay, so so as many, slightly more even to the south as to the north. In the, in the narrow Karelian Isthmus, there were, there were, there was a massive concentration, of course. And I think that's yes, where we're going to delve that's into the main effort. Yeah. After uh, after maybe a short short intermission from Ukraine, War Dogo. Uh, yeah, in uh, Russian and uh, Soviet at those time propaganda, uh, you always can hear. I don't know. I apologize. I was distracted for a moment, and I apologize if it was already mentioned. Uh, in Soviet propaganda, we usually hear about the Mannerheim defensive line, which, uh, as turned out, was usually used by Soviets to justify their enormous uh, losses. And instead of saying that, hey, our way, how we manage the battle is just throw throw the meat in the in the in the 
in the mincer and uh, see what happens. Uh, they just saying they were just saying, hey, but the Finnish side was highly uh, prepared and highly uh, highly prepared defensive lines. Uh, from what you see then in the in the historical uh, books, what you see in the military records, in fact, there were heroic people of uh, Finland who were defending, and there was fantastic. Uh, military management who really managed that defense in a, in a smart way, uh, avoiding, uh, let's say, um, how to say, compensating the lack of uh, weapons by uh, how that weapons were used. Similar, we see also in Ukraine that some disadvantage in the in the in the weapons are compensated by the tactics how those weapons are used. And the question is about this uh, Mannerheim line. I apologize if it, was, if it was already mentioned, but to what extent it played the role and uh, how big effect was in the propaganda. And I would not be surprised if one day Russians will be saying that there is there was a big line in Ukraine uh, preventing them to move to villages in since 2014. Uh, yes, so if if you're specifically um, uh, asking about the propaganda of the Mannerheim line or the p- propaganda that's uh, attached to it, uh, then yes, I mean uh, that was what it was. What it's what you, what you basically said. But uh, after the war and even during the war, uh, the so- Soviets um, very heavily emphasized the fact that, uh, like the Mannerheim line, was the the Maginot line of the north, so it was this impregnable line of fortresses that uh, they had to repeatedly assault before they managed to break through. So that that's why they suffered all these heavy casualties. And uh, especially in the in the short term, it wasn't really in Finnish interests to try and uh, you know uh, go go against that narrative because uh, there was nothing really inherently problematic about that for uh, for the Finnish military and 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 our martial uh, martial prowess but uh, the um, uh, i would say that uh, even though there is truth in the fact that uh, it was really the only only place where you would ha- find these uh, that it was a really and truly fortified line of defenses. Uh, there was actually there was the main line, and there were, then there was an immediate line, and after that there was a third line as well. Though though these second and third lines were really really woefully prepared, the especially the the third line was almost non-existent, the, even even though it was tried to be strengthened before the war. But only the main line was mostly completed, but not totally. So. Uh, if you want, I could go into detail about the line now or a bit later, but uh, later, later, short later. An- apologize. Yeah, I mean the the short answer is that it was a strong defensive line, and it did help Finnish defensive efforts quite a lot. But uh, it was a false narrative in the sense that there were many many other attributes that affected to the outcome. In, in the end, and obviously part of that is the deficiencies of the Red Army itself. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Right. Let's push south to the lake.
Yeah. Okay. So now we come to the, to the main main battle front. So one thing that uh, I think is uh, needs to be made clear right from the get go as is that uh, uh, unlike all the other places of the frontier, you will see. Uh, well, on this my this map is it's just uh, whiteness on the background, but. Uh, the the thing is that there are no key strategic targets that are quite near the frontier so that there is there is room to maneuver in a way that you can let the enemy advance and then then uh, try and take advantage of uh, of opportunities as they present themselves but uh, it's different on the on the Karelian isthmus here here was the place where the Finnish military actually had to stand and defend once they got to the main line of defense because uh, the city of Viborg with which was the second largest city of Finland at the time uh would have to be defended as much as possible because its capture by by the red army would be uh would be a crucial problem uh and because not only its own value as a as a key point in the in the railways in in the road network but also if you're able to advance beyond that point then uh the defensive lines would have to become much more longer and therefore impossible for the small finnish military to defend effectively so uh now we can basically go to uh, first of all uh, like like the other parts uh, so here is what where the similarities begin and end at first there were delaying actions throughout the east isthmus where uh, finnish forces tried to retreat uh, the red army spearheads as they retreated and uh, here we found that even a single rifle shot could uh, stop a uh, red army column on its tracks so there was um, the professionalism of the advancing military was uh, made uh, made apparent already there uh, but uh, they were able to push forward uh, still a bit quicker than the uh, Finnish military command uh, headed by Marshal Mannerheim uh, would have liked uh, but uh, by the time uh, they uh, ma- made it to the main Finnish defensive line uh, the Finnish forces were there in strength and in prepared positions, and uh, I think now is a time when we when, when I can uh, describe these positions in in uh, short detail, not long detail, because that would take hours. So basically, uh, even though the uh, the layout isn't uh, it, it it isn't in a straight line, uh, but uh, the basic aspects is that uh, both ends of the line are anchored by coastal artillery forts with uh, heavy artillery pieces both on the Lake Ladoka side and on the Gulf of Finland side and uh, in between uh, you will have uh, lines of barbed barbed wire you will have uh, both uh, uh, heavy heavy rocks placed in uh, anti armor lines uh, a bit similar, but uh, 
I would hope uh, a little, well, I would say that uh, a little bit more expertly placed than, uh, than the ones we have seen uh, previously on, on Twitter in, uh, in occupied Ukraine. Uh, and they would have anti-tank ditches, they would have entrenchments, they would have uh, uh, fields of fire laid out. Uh, most of this line, there would be concrete emplacements. Uh, rare few would maybe have uh, anti-tank guns, but most of them just had machine guns because, like I said, Finns didn't really have that many artillery pieces to begin with. And uh, there would be uh, dugouts for uh, the crew to shelter uh, from artillery, indirect artillery fire. Uh, and uh, there would be also a bit of in-depth defense as well, but mostly it was still only one line. And the issue was that it was first planned already in the beginning of the 1920s. The first planning moves were already made in 1919. So it was it was conceived on different decades. So the... Uh, Advances in uh, how to plan and how to construct fortifications weren't completely uh, taken note of. And because, as I mentioned before, defensive budgets in Finland were always hard fought and there was never enough funds. So that uh, there was one key aspect, one key place uh, along the uh, main Viipuri highway, the village of Summa. There, the first fortifications were built already in the 20s. And uh, when uh, more planning was affected and uh, the line was strengthened, it was already noted back then that in this key place, the defensive line had a, uh, shall we say, a corner, a jot, so that fire could be uh, directed at it from uh, not only from the front, but at an angle as well. So it was already back then identified as a probable weak point. But the problem was that even at that point, so much effort had been put into, into fortifications at that place. So it wasn't considered economically feasible to try and, uh, let's, let's say, smooth out the edges of the fortification line at that point. So a weakness remained. And... Uh, it's we will come back to this point in a in a short moment so the basic thing you could take out of this is that it was a strong defensive line but if you look at photos and uh, maps of the Maginot line there is you, you cannot compare these two literally because at the Maginot line you would have basically entire cities underground so there, this is nothing, nothing like that whatsoever. But it was a strong line. When, when manned with capable forces, it was a strong line. So, uh, questions at this time, or shall I move forward, Doman? Move forward. Okay, excellent. So, uh, when before I started describing the line, uh, you will note that the the Red Army had made it. To the main, main defensive line. And at this point, uh, the Finnish command staff decided that uh, the, uh, the Red Army had been able to make its advance a bit too easily. 
uh, and they had noted that uh, there was some disorganization in its ranks. So they thought that uh, before they were able to uh, uh, deploy effectively, that there was a chance for a counteroffensive. Uh, but sadly, even though the Finnish military had done maneuvers, they had trained, but they had never tried to do an offensive in the scale of an army corps before. And uh, uh, there, shall we say that uh, in Finnish, this counteroffensive is called Hölmöntölvars, uh, which in English means something roughly akin to uh, a fool's fumble. And uh, so everything basically went wrong. Uh, the orders didn't have enough uh, leeway for the for attacking forces to uh, prepare properly. Uh, communications line, communication lines between uh, the forces and supporting artillery weren't good enough, so that uh, in some parts uh, there was some really uh, lame uh, artillery bombardment. In other, other parts, it failed to occur at all, and the advances were disjointed. Uh, one sad aspect of, it, of this counteroffensive was also that uh, there were approximately 32 uh, slightly modern uh, Finnish tanks also employed, the, the basically the whole of Finnish armored force, which was basically these uh, Vickers tanks, which were good enough at the time still. But uh, uh, the problem was that the, the Finnish forces hadn't seen, they, they weren't really employed in maneuvers that much pre-war. So that when, when Finnish forces saw the tanks coming up in their rear, some of them actually panicked because they thought that they were Russian or Red, Red Army tanks, which uh, didn't uh, do any, any good for the offensive at all. Uh, and in the end, the, even with all these stumbles, uh, the fin Finns did make a dent in the, uh, in the Red Army lines. They did manage to advance and inflict damage, even though they suffered casualties as well. Uh, they really didn't achieve uh, any of the set uh, territorial, territorial objectives that they had. But uh, even as they withdrew from their, to their starting positions uh, uh, to the Mannerheim line, uh, the offensive did have some uh, good aspect to it as well, because the Red Army now was uh, skeptical, okay, the, they are attacking us. This must mean that they are stronger than we figured. Aha, so we must prepare more thoroughly. And that actually gave the Finns some breathing room before the uh, first real attacks in strength began. So uh, in the first phase, where the Red Army assaulted these Finnish fortified defenses, these were basically the uh, same kind of attacks that uh, you would see in uh, in the First World War, which is basically, uh, or even worse, because this would basically be uh, masses of men uh, walking and in the end running up against Finnish machine guns, uh, Finnish artillery fire, and uh, they would be mowed down relentlessly. And uh, even though the Finnish artillery was, was uh, far too poorly equipped, it didn't have enough ammunition, 
But uh, given given the masses that were sent onwards towards Finnish positions, all, all, every shell that they uh, fired met met its target. And uh, uh, the thing is that these first first advances also made patently clear that even though uh, these forces they had armored support, they had heavy heavy artillery support, there was air bombardment, but. Uh, it was disjointed. There was no um, uh, effort involved in trying to synchronize the artillery bombardment, the aerial bombardment, or the advance of the armored forces to the advance of the infantry. So often enough, the, the tanks would come in first, and uh, they would uh, move about in the front lines. They would uh, sometimes attempt to uh, move past the uh, uh, armored uh, obstacles. Uh, at times, the Finns discovered that the uh, the rows of uh, obstacles, the uh, often man man uh, made rocks that they had put up, were actually uh, not tall enough, so that some sometimes the tanks could uh, basically just run over them, especially in the heavy snow. Uh, but that also presented uh, for the few Finnish anti-tank guns in the line that presented good targets, because uh, when the tanks go up, their uh, unarmored underbellies uh, are presented as well. So uh, uh, the the Finns, even though they had uh, limited uh, anti-tank weaponry, they were able to uh, beat back these armored offensives, and uh, because the Finnish machine gunners uh, would continue mowing down Russian infantry, uh, these tanks were in effect unsupported, and the ones that weren't destroyed would would withdraw. Uh, and uh, at this point, I think it would be good for me to describe uh, what sort of weapons the Finns did use to uh, uh, take out these tanks, because um, uh, they had some precious few 37 millimeter anti-tank guns bought from Sweden just before the war started which were very effective against almost all Soviet tanks at the time. Uh, they also had uh, ver some very few uh, anti-tank rifles, which didn't make it into production uh, quick quickly enough to them for them to be of use in, in the Winter War. Uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, artillery was also used quite effectively when, uh, when they had enough shells. Uh, and uh, beyond that, it was um, Molotov cocktails that were first employed against tanks in the Spanish Civil War, but it was in Finland when they were uh, coined as Molotov cocktails. And uh, when it's about uh, bottling alcohol and, uh, you know, um, making it a flame, the Finns at least knew how to uh, make alcohol at that point as well. So uh, that was a nice nice quick thing to utilize and beyond that uh, the Finns would also use uh, logs of wood they would use crowbars uh, because uh, when these tanks were unsupported uh, the bravest Finns would literally just run up to the tank if they had a log of wood big enough they would just put it in in between the uh, track and the and the uh, end or the front wheel of a tank and when the track would spin the log would get stuck and therefore the tank would also get stuck and in some cases spins would actually use crowbars to uh, to pry off threads 
from tanks. And uh, after they were immobile, usually the crew would try to bail. And if they didn't, the Finns could uh, use such hold charges, which is basically uh, high explosives or uh, groups of grenades tied together and then uh, thrown at a really close distance to the tank, which would usually destroy it. Uh, so yeah, those those are uh, some of the options available to the Finns when they didn't have enough anti-tank weaponry, uh, the, the sort that had any range, at least. So, uh, like I said, these first uh, offensives, they were uh, uh, shot to pieces by the Finns, and uh, in some points, when these assaulteds, uh, assaults lasted for days, uh, at the end of them, uh, sometimes Finnish machine gunners ha would have to be evacuated to the rear because uh, when a human being has to do mass murder, even if it's in the defense of your nation, if it's even if it's a righteous cause, you're you're still a human. And if you're uh, if you're doing that kind of a bloody job day in day out, uh, it will it will take its toll. So that I think is one example of uh, e even if these attacks were beat back, there was still still a cost. And you have to remember that because these are fixed positions. So uh, even though in the beginning most of these positions would have been camouflaged, uh, especially when you're faced with continuous artillery fire, these camouflage elements are. Uh, basically thrown about, they are destroyed, and uh, especially when the when fire is coming at you from one specific specific fort, point from uh, all the time, e even even the red army will will figure out where the strong strong points are. And uh, one <laughs> one uh, funny or not so funny aspect is that there was actually a spy in the Finnish general staff. From the late thirties to the uh, late twenties to the to the thirties, who was a photographer at the headquarters, and was able to uh, use his position to uh, basically take out stuff from uh, some of the most safe storage areas of uh, of the general staff, photograph them, and uh, speed them along to the Soviet side. So even with that kind of information advantage, uh, it was just something that. Uh, they, they they had layouts of these positions. That's what I'm saying. So even even with that, they were unsuccessful. So after these first assaults were thrown back bloodily, uh, there were brief moments of pause because even the Red Army realized that uh, this is isn't going to work. So uh, uh, they basically uh, there was a the operational pause meant that. Uh, the Russians, uh, the Red Army brought in reinforcements that they had uh, the superiority in uh, in armor, in uh, artillery, in infantry. It it was basically, uh, I think, uh, I won't I won't be far from the exact truth when I say that they had ten ten times the amount of hardware, especially in armor. The advantage was even much more, and it was more more in the air, especially. Uh, and uh, then, by then, they had also uh, 
changed up up their uh, general staff in, in the front line so that there were there were new uh, generals in charge as well who had perhaps uh, shall we say a more realistic touch that uh, force need, needed to be applied more that uh, just you know sending masses of uh, people in front of machine guns wouldn't do so there were attempts to provide some more cover to the uh, red army infantry uh, they were there were these uh, armored plates on on skis for the uh, very first line of troops there was uh, more um, attempts at actually taking care of the Finnish anti-tank uh, defenses the obstacles and uh, there were there was much more effort placed into trying to uh, create a clear synergy between the artillery preparation, the use of armor, the advance of infantry, and also with the use of air force. It, it was by no means uh, what Mannerheim would have called a uh, symphony orchestra, where every piece is uh, doing uh, doing its basic purpose in clear harmony with all the other pieces of the orchestra, but they did learn after expending copious amounts of blood. And when they began their offensives anew, uh, they were able to apply much more pressure because at that time you have to realize that the, the Finnish forces, uh, basically almost every man who was able to be sent to the front was already there. so. Operational reserves beyond the Finnish defensive lines were few and far between. So there wasn't that much of a chance to pull units from the front to the rear to rest and to cycle forces, unlike the Ukrainian defense forces are clearly able to do. So uh, the Finnish forces were tired. They were severely outnumbered, but still, if even even when these final offensives began with a much more professional red army they were still able to hold but then the first serious breakthrough did occur in in the summa village sector the, the one i mentioned earlier and uh, because by this time the finnish uh, leadership had already be become accustomed to uh, uh crisis in the front that they would they were they had been so many times in the near past being dealt with uh by local forces so when this breakthrough occurred uh it wasn't uh reacted to in the same in in the kind of speed that it would have needed to one thing is that the Finnish armed forces at this time, they didn't have enough radios either, just like with almost any other kind of equipment as well. So that the communications lines, the, the urgency and the crisis that was occurring was not made clear enough to high command so that the few reserves that they had didn't make it in time. And when they did realize it and the reserves were all thrown in, it was already too late. So at the end of the day, the Red Army was able to uh, uh, secure its breakthrough, and the fin Finnish forces were had to withdraw to the intermediate line, 
just beyond the, the main Mannerheim line defense. Uh, they were able to hold there for a time, but they they had to withdraw again. And this time, the front line, if you look at the map and you see where Vipur is, when uh, the Red Army advance uh, continued, the line would extend to the city of Vipuri. There were actually street fighting occurring in, in that city. It was mostly ruins by now because there had been uh, se severe uh, aerial bombardment for a time already, and now with added artillery, it was made into a, partly as a piece of rubble. And at this time too, uh, because the line was no longer anchored at both ends with uh, heavy coastal artillery, so the uh, the western edge of the line was essentially standing on just the shoreline. There was no fixed uh, heavy uh, artillery placements there. So the, the Red Army actually tried to go around the defense defensive line uh, through the uh, through the sea, and because it was dead of winter, uh, the ice could actually hold tanks, artillery, infantry columns. Uh, the good good thing for the Finns is that uh, because because it was ice, uh, there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and uh, even though the line wasn't anchored on heavy artillery, thankfully there were still some heavy coastal artillery guns within range, uh, including 380, uh, is it 360, 380 millimeter? But uh, like the heaviest artillery guns available to the Finns, they would use both uh, anti-armor piercing shells that were meant for battleships, and they would use, use shrapnel charges so that they could also um, they could punch holes through the ice which would meant that uh, tanks and uh, vehicles and infantry would have to take a dip in the sea which uh, was uh, a final experience in that kind of temperatures and uh, the ones that uh, weren't killed uh, by the ice cold sea, uh, they would be uh, treated heavily by the heavy shrapnel shells, and uh, even the Finnish air force, which was had been severely tested already, uh, they joined in and machine gunned whole Russian infantry columns on the ice, uh, so that the most dangerous. Uh, strikes that were attempted, the, these flanking maneuvers, many of them were defeated on the ice, but still there was enough preponderance of force on the Soviet side that they could apply severe pressure to uh, Finnish defenses because these would, ha would have been completely ad hoc on, on the shorelines. So by the time peace arrived, arrived uh, uh, the Finnish forces were really hanging on by their fingernails, both in the city center of Viborg, but also on the shoreline of uh, the Gulf of Finland. So they had given all. And thankfully, Finnish diplomats and also the, uh, the threat of allied intervention 
Uh, and this was uh, part of the big, bigger, bigger picture of uh, World War II, that uh, there was an expedition planned to, uh, to Norway, which was uh, under the French premier at the time, Daladier. Uh, also, part of it was to uh, aid, or supposedly to aid Finland. Uh, and uh, this, the threat of uh, allied forces uh, coming to the aid of Finns was uh, more apparent than real. Thankfully, the Finns recognized it as such, but Stalin didn't. So it uh, applied just enough pressure for uh, Stalin as well to be eager for a peace, even though none of his objectives, objectives had been reached. So that is basically the main combat operations. Uh, there are a couple of things still. Uh, if if there's, there's questions about the Isthmus, we can go into those because there's, there's a couple of points I like to uh, some certain numbers and figures that would uh, give uh, more description to the uh, to the at the end of the war. I, I, Antti, could you just talk a little bit more about urban operations in Vipuri? Uh, Vipuri, you tell me how that's Vipuri. Yes, Vipuri. Okay, Vipuri. Yes. Um, can, yeah. you, can you go into that a little bit more? Because I'm very curious about that. That seems to be, you know, generally uh, the Winter War and Continuation War. There's a lot of talk about right, operations on skis and forests, and this must have been very different. And uh, maybe if we say urban many enough times, we shall awaken uh, <laughs> Colonel Spencer and have him join us. Who knows? Who knows if our telepathy works that well? Uh, but but uh, uh, anti urban operations. How did that look like? T tell us as much as you can. How, how important was that for, to at least delay the Russian advance as well? Well, it was, it was basically, uh, uh, at least on the whole, it, you, could, you could say that it was a miniature Stalingrad uh, in a way because uh, the Finnish Finns would uh, cling on to uh, each and every building as, as long as they could. And uh, Use uh, use these small killing fields to try and uh, uh, destroy destroy enemy forces. Uh, the the issue was with the Finns that, uh, like Colonel Spencer has mentioned many times, and others have, as well, that uh, armor support is uh, is critical in uh, urban urban warfare. Is that well, actually, the Finns had next to none of armor support at the time. And uh, also, there was far few, far too few mortars. There was far too few artillery, and uh, also far too few anti-tank weapons. So that uh, this this was a theme also in the Mannerheim line battles was that uh, because the material preponderance was so much skewed to the Red Army side. There would actually be cases that uh, Red Army artillery would be axle to axle, uh, no, no pun intended, uh, on, on the actual battlefield, firing on open sites directly to the bunkers. And uh, Russians could, could use artillery in this way because they didn't have to worry about counter, counter battery fire because the Finnish didn't have an, even enough. Enough ammunition to do that. Enough shells. So uh, basically, it was uh, it was 
Finnish light infantry hanging on by their fingernails to each and every building as as long as they could. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a desperate kind of fighting and also something that the the Finns didn't have experience from from pre- previous combat because uh, uh, if you go go to the north of Finland, there was there were a couple of instances where some singular buildings did have uh, an effect on uh, on the uh, on the local level, but uh, this was a this was the only urban environment where combat to a to a scale actually occurred. But uh, even even though they were tired, even though they were unaccustomed, they were there was still spirit enough so that they could still effectively resist at that time. But uh, it was o- it was only a question of time. Uh, Finnish lines would have collapsed g- given enough pounding if uh, if peace hadn't arrived. Thank you, Antti. Um, Pauli. All right, thank you. Thank you for a good update. Uh, and, uh, well, the, uh, how to say, uh, the history brief, Antti. Um, one comment I would like to make on um, the uh, resource thing is that I think it's often um, misunderstood what was the value of the foreign support um, to Finnish forces. Uh, the uh, winter war only lasted for three months. And it was during the winter time, and we we didn't have like Finland is an island. We didn't have um the logistics, any airplanes, cargo airplanes at that time, or any railway or any actual like ship routes that we could effectively utilize. So um uh, although we gained uh, material sh- support, uh, monetary support that, that was really good, but actually the uh, foreign troops um arrived at at late i think it was late february if i'm not correct and and there was no significant value on the foreign troops the amount was low and at that time the uh battle was already fought in in many fronts with, with the was, exception of the, of the swedes in the north yeah exactly and in the north well you can say there's some strategic value there but uh for the uh, swedes I think it took two months to make the decision. Officially, uh, they they were uh, against. I mean, they were uh, the uh, their king and the prime minister was against sending troops, but they allowed the volunteers uh, to participate. That, that that was the official uh, point of view from the Sweden at that point. They wanted to stay, stay neutral. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, and if we draw parallels, um. In in the uh, with, with to Ukraine, it's a good thing that nowadays the logistics work. The foreign fighters, although they are low in numbers, still they could uh, take a plane to uh, Poland and arrive to the front within one week. So I, I think that's a if we draw parallels, that's a better thing. And the logistics work a lot better than they did in winter winter war. All right, so that's my two cents on the resources uh, thing. Uh, I guess we would have needed a lot more resources and fighting forces in order to continue. One question uh, I had is that uh, can you um, tell a bit about the Motti uh, fights? There were at least like 
12 to 14 different mortis uh, in the eastern front. And I linked to this the, the, the uh, resource topics because Finland gained a lot of resources from, from these mortis tanks, um, infantry weapons, um, everything, artillery, guns. So, can you, um, can you tell about a bit more about the Motti fight that we had in the in the east, near yeah. Lieksa direction and in, in the uh, Latokka direction? Thank you, and thanks for uh, excellent knowledge on the uh, topic. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. So, yes, uh, just a slightly more on first on the uh, uh, material and uh, for, foreign troops. Uh, the total number of foreign troops was something around 12,000, but uh, like Pauli said, most of these uh, uh, volunteers arrived at the front too late to make uh, any sort of difference. And even if, if it would have been 12,000 troops together, at maybe if it was the focal point, there would have been some oper operational difference. But as it, as it stood, it wasn't. But uh, also that uh, Finland did start accelerated uh, military procurement uh, ventures, uh, but they only started them in the in the autumn of 1939. And obviously, at that time, the, the war was really the World War Two had already begun. So uh, there was uh, little problems in uh, making military procurement at the time because uh, everyone was buying and uh, no one was selling. And uh, when Finns started really desperately trying to look for more equipment, more artillery pieces, uh, aircraft, anti-tank weapons. World War II was raging already, so uh, e even in uh, even when they were successfully able to uh, buy stuff, getting it to Finland was another matter entirely. One, one crucial uh, hindrance was that uh, uh, nations like uh, Hungary and Italy actually uh, gave Quite a quite a bit of kit, uh, Italy with fighter planes and uh, stuff like that. But uh, they would have had to pass through Germany, and uh, Germany naturally allied with the Soviet Union for some reason didn't didn't uh, let them pass. So uh, that was one one key issue. But uh, as Pauli kind of hinted already. Uh, as with the Ukrainian armed forces, it was uh, the Red Army. Uh, and in in the current sense, the Moscovy Moscovy forces that uh, provided the greatest preponderance of uh, new equipment because uh, uh, from the motis that the Finnish were able to uh, cut up into pieces and uh, destroy, uh, they gained a whole host of uh, military equipment, all the way from uh, rifles to machine guns to anti-aircraft guns, artillery pieces, uh, tanks, armored cars, uh, uh, everything and anything. And uh, especially with, uh, with the lighter equipment, uh, all the way to... Uh, I'm, one thing, one telling aspect from which you can tell that there was really not that much detailed thought into going, going into how these uh, Red Army forces were, were equipped against Finland was that all of these formations were plentifully equipped with anti-tank guns. And even with the most skewed intelligence work in the whole, whole of world, they would have had to figure out that 
Finland didn't have really tax. So uh, it was a early birthday present for the Finnish military because they did gain substantial uh, reinforcements to their anti-tank arsenal from uh, from Red Army anti-tank guns. Uh, because uh, these were a, the Finnish guys were able to press that these in the service almost immediately. If there was ammunition around, they could service them minutes after they were captured, basically. So uh, uh, sadly, the uh, armored vehicles and the uh, uh, most of the artillery pieces, because they actually ne- did need some work before they could be pressed in the service uh, maintenance. Uh, so most of the most of the heavier equipment was only be able to utilize uh, in the next war, the continuation war. And uh, it's telling. I actually had a thread about this a uh, couple of months back. Uh, insofar as at, at least as the artillery and some other aspects of uh, land forces go, that uh, the va- in several different areas, uh, the vast majority of equipment in artillery pieces, in armor, uh, also to an extent in uh, anti-tank weapons and uh, like with trucks and stuff like that, uh, the vast majority of the equipment that the Finns used in the continuation war came from these motis. So these gestures of goodwill, and they were uh, very effectively employ, employed with a light light kit already during winter war, but with heavier equipment uh, from 1941 onwards. So in in winter war, as I said, the Finns had 32 uh, somewhat modern armored vehicles, tanks. And uh, in the continuation war, Finns had an entire armored division. And uh, I think that tells you everything you need to know. And yeah, I was going to ask you more about how uh, you know, the Finns integrated uh, and the captured equipment, the, the lent leased equipment, I guess, the lent leased equipment. Uh, but, but I think you, you covered that uh, exceedingly well. Uh, were there any you know hiccups with it at all? Um, any major hiccups? Um, or did fin- were Finns already kind of familiar with Soviet equipment from beforehand, from pre-1939? So uh, the thing, the the basic uh, key issue with with Finnish was that uh, uh, our experiences with armored forces were uh, quite minimal before Winter War. I mean, there was a we basically had an uh, first an armored uh, company that was expanded into a battalion which originally had uh, Renault FT17 and 80s from France. Are these the really and, tiny ones? Yeah, the, the, they're, they're really tiny ones. There, There is even one one example of these still remaining in the Finnish Armored Museum even even today which I think is quite a rare rare treat. But uh, uh, I, I would suggest that this is sort of the role of a museum. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. Okay, but uh, so the Finns had didn't have enough experience with tanks to be able to, uh, shall we say, integrate them properly into 
into our military. But we we did have experience. We we did have a small professional core of uh, armored guys already. And uh, when when the first of these uh, motis were cut up into pieces, and we realized that uh, there was a uh, that we would suddenly have a great windfall of, of armored equipment. There was actually a uh, cent- central uh, armored uh, workshop uh, created where all of this kit was brought to, and uh, they were uh, basically uh, that was at, at Waterkaus, which uh, which is uh, there's some irony to that because Waterkaus in English means uh, theft. So. Uh, that's basically a bit of a nice nice irony to that. But in any, in any case, uh, they centralized the repair and uh, reapplication of this armor to one place. So they uh, they had all the, all the ma- all the mechanics that uh, that was possible to recruit. They had uh, machinery, though machinery was a bit of a problem because fin- Finland wasn't heavily industri- industrialized at this time. Uh, some of the equipment was uh, uh, needed to uh, to create and uh, upgrade and uh, fix spare parts was uh, gotten via donations from Sweden. Some of it was bought, but uh, the the low level of um, machinery uh, meant that it was actually the rate of uh, making uh, vehicles available for uh, reuse was was quite slow. So that we, we were able to basically create an armored division uh, by the summer of 1941. That was that was really really great. Uh, even though there was uh, it wasn't really called that at the time yet, but it would be reorganized as such during uh, the the the, 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 the a year after that. But anyway, I I digress. But uh, Yes, so the main issue was that there wasn't enough um, personnel uh, and not enough machinery. But uh, considering the constraints, the Finns did okay. They were they were just they were enough to maintain and also uh, uh, utilize the equipment as as efficiently as one might expect, because. uh, when we go into the next war, when the Finns captured more advanced equipment like T-34s and uh, uh, Klimenti Vorosilov ones and uh, even some heavier kit, the Finns were able to utilize it already. So, uh, yeah, so there were issues, but, uh, you know, uh, ingenuity. I think there is some of that in Ukraine going around right now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Antti. Um, I have a question pending, you know, what then led to the continuation war, but uh, if you, if you want to make you know, any, any notes still outstanding that you think are important to make on the on the winter war itself, go, go right ahead. I'm being yeah. told, I'm being told that there weren't any export licenses from Germany. Should I respond to that or not? I, I think that's a, another Finn having a... a, a I, I think so, a little bit, Yeah. Someone who knows me too well. That's a bit of a low blow, but I'll let that go. Uh, yeah, but uh, just a brief note to the end. So um, 
so peace was finally uh, negotiated when uh, when the uh, threat of allied intervention and also the uh, embarrassment of failure uh, reached high enough so that uh, Stalin just wanted it to stop. Uh, and there, there have been these feelers from via the uh, Swedish uh, embassy in uh, in Stockholm already throughout the war, but uh, they had come to nothing because, uh, you know, the Soviet was always say, well, yes, but we have very good relations with the uh, with the Finnish government. It's right there in Perioki and, uh, you know, it's everything is great. But uh, then the pretense was dropped and the uh, uh, the so-called uh, Teriyaki government was packed away uh, somewhere deep in Siberia. Uh, but uh, there was a cost. Uh, we did lose uh, all of the Karelianismus. We did lose Vipuri. We, we, uh, we also lost territory on the uh, northern side of uh, Lake Ladokka. Uh, all in total, about 10% of our uh, of our land. Uh, 400,000 people had to uh, be uh, uh, given uh, another place to stay because, um, thankfully, all, all the Finns had a, the civilian population had been evacuated uh, before uh, the uh, before the Red Army's advance, so that. Uh, uh, thankfully, we're, we weren't in the terrible position as uh, as Ukraine has found itself in. But still, it was uh, four, 400,000 people displaced that needed new settlement for a population of uh, 3.4 million. That's that's still a lot. And losing the second largest city of uh, Finland, that was a it was a heavy blow. And actually, our uh, our president at the time, President Gallio, who uh, who signed the peace accords, uh, said, while wh- when he started writing his signature on the peace accord, he said, "May the hand that uh, signs this document wither and die." And soon after, he had a he had a seizure, and uh, that part of his body, that literally that hand, uh, went. It it he was unable to use it after that, and. Uh, when he was um, not too long after that, when he was leaving uh, leaving Helsinki for his uh, place of home, he actually uh, collapsed and died and at, in the arms of uh, Marshal Mannerheim. So that was uh, that was a piece of uh, legend in 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 Finland. But uh, so the uh, the butcher score at the end of the war uh, seventy. 3,000 Finns had uh, died or wounded. Uh, 800,000 Russians were casualties. So that was, uh, if I remember correctly, that was like 200,000 dead and uh, 600,000 wounded. And that there have been uh, different estimates of uh, Soviet casualties uh, ever since the war, but that is the most current number I have red and about 3000 tanks were lost 1000 airplanes and the Finns lost 62 airplanes so uh, say can you say those numbers again uh which numbers all of them the the ratio yeah yeah so uh 3000 tanks 
1,000 airplanes and then uh, 62 Finnish airplanes. Uh, I have That's read about some the, ratio. That is that is some ratio. Yeah, I would I would agree. Uh, Finns did lose tanks as well, but uh, I mean, the most of the Renaults were fixed uh, emplacements on the on the battle line on the fortified lines, so uh, most of them were already lo- losses before the war started. But uh, some of the Vickers were lost as well. I don't remember out of hand how many, but uh, you know, it was uh, a lot less than three thousand. It's hard to lose three thousand tanks if you only have one hundred. Or, or if you have 30 tanks, it's hard to lose 3,000 yeah. tanks. Yeah, uh, there you go. Um, yeah. Andy, sh- should we ask the question? What that le- what then led to the continuation war? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's... Uh, you, you could probably do a podcast on that alone, but I think one key aspect was that uh, even though peace was signed, it really wasn't peace, uh, because um, uh, the Soviet Union continued its very hostile posture towards Finland. Uh, there were, uh, when the new borderline was uh, still being uh, laid on, on the ground, there were, I don't remember the precise number out of hand, but there was, there were like, uh, there was o- o- at least over a hundred Finnish citizens were killed or abducted from uh, from the new borderline by the Soviets during the sort of the uh, the short peace before continuation war, and they kept on trying to uh, uh, change their interpretation of where the borderline went, and uh, the Soviet government did. Other unkind things, they, they continued pressing uh, the Finns, uh, especially when, uh, well, the, in the first place, the Finnish military still had to maintain its uh, mobilized posture because uh, it, it, it was no way, uh, you know, uh, safety in the, in the knowledge that, that uh, the Soviet, that the Red Army wouldn't attack again. So most of the military stayed mobilized, and a new uh, defensive line were, were started to be constructed on the new border. And uh, there was a uh, one one attempt to try and secure our uh, national security was was to uh, create a, uh, a union state with Sweden, and even even the lighter version of a military alliance, both of those were basically shot down by the Soviet Union. Uh, so there was a there was a co- continued and very acute sense of insecurity in Finland, and it wasn't uh, made any better by the fact that the Finnish civilian airliner was shot down by by Soviet uh, bombers over the Gulf of Finland, and. Uh, uh, even though uh, they they never admitted it. it, apparently it was done because there was a diplomatic uh, courier on that plane, and they wanted the contents of the diplomatic suitcase. And uh, so it was unsurprising that when the plane was shut down, there was a Russia, there was a Soviet submarine uh, waiting to scour the, the debris for the suitcase. So shooting and, down uh, civilian airliners. 
Yeah. Where have we heard that since? I don't know. It's it's a mystery. Total mystery. And Some things uh, just never change, do they? No, 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 they don't. They don't. And uh, and it was uh, only uh, when we go to the uh, latter stage of 1940 when the uh, relationship between uh, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany began to uh, uh, became a bit more sour when uh, when Nazi Germany was uh, already making its plans to invade Soviet Union and that was when uh, there was this uh, uh, diplomatic uh, conference with uh, with Hitler and Molotov in Berlin where uh, Molotov uh, not for the not for the first time but uh, almost the last time uh, wanted a bit of a freedom of movement to finally handle handle Finland but uh, uh, Hitler said no, because apparently he had other plans, because he wanted to invade the Soviet Union, and it wouldn't be as easy if, uh, you know, Finland was uh, painted red already. So uh, at this time, uh, Nazi Germany already occupied Norway. So uh, the first time, uh, so, so there was kind of this, this first movement, uh, on very unofficial movement from uh, from the Germans that uh, you know we would uh, maybe like to uh, transfer some troops to relieve uh, forces in Norway through Finland and uh, also that you know weapon sales might not be out of the realm of possibilities anymore and uh, one thing led to another and uh, German troops started arriving in uh, in Finland and uh, it wasn't that long long before uh, signals were started to be made that, you know, we might, uh, the relationship between Soviet Union and Nazi Germany might not stay friendly for that long. So, you know, uh, I don't know if you have some territory you lost, to maybe you'd like to take that back. I don't know. Uh, so it was, the situation was surreal in Finland uh, during that time because um, uh, German troops were uh, were uh, landing in uh, in a couple of Finnish harbors, and there were German columns going going around Finland and uh, to to Norway and uh, towards uh, the Vietnam Vietsamo mines, which were still Finnish at the time, to uh, properly secure them. And uh, there there was actually a Finnish commentary that's telling from that period that which was that. Uh, uh, the more German forces arrive in Finland, the safer I feel, which is probably the most surreal statement to to make during that time, that someone feels safer when German troops arrive in your country. But uh, so uh, and, and also the, the issue with Finnish foreign foreign affairs at the time was that uh, when you're faced with a with a hostile neighbor that's uh, imminently superior to you, and uh, even though Finland was naturally, even with the cultural and uh, old uh, military and commercial relations to Germany, uh, still there was much more sympathy uh, to to the Western Allies because naturally Finland was a democracy and not a dictatorship. So 
it would have been our, our political class, and mo mostly not all of them, but uh, certainly many of them would have been much happier if Finland would, would have been able to uh, uh, lean on lean on the West, lean on Great Britain, lean on France, but uh, France had fallen. Britain was uh, under siege from from the air, from the sea, and uh, it was there was no one who could support Finland at that time, because uh, unless it was Germany. So uh, the leadership at the time uh, took the only choice they had, and uh, after. After the invasion of Soviet Union began, uh, there were already there were uh, German troops in the north of Finland. Some 250,000 of them were also uh, uh, ready to advance on on the Soviet Union, and uh, uh, Soviet Union knew of this, and uh, uh, the Finns were also planning to uh, retake retake the uh, conquered lands back. But uh, Soviet Union, being as Soviet Union was, uh, they bombed Finland, and thus uh, began the war. So that, I mean, continuation war, but that would really, I mean, there's there's a lot. Let's just say that there's there's much more ambigu ambiguity and much more complex. Issues at play with the continuation war because uh, it wasn't a defensive war in the same way that the that winter war was. It was an offensive war to begin with. Yet another war of conquest. Yes. Can you remind the audience how many civilians? How many Finns had to die? How many Finns in service had to sacrifice their lives? For the Winter War, it was 73,000 total with the wounded. How many invaders were reintegrated into the food chain? 800,000. I mean, that's with the wounded, but still. Got Sisu? Yeah. So, I think... A okay. question, yeah. question from the listeners. How many POWs, Finnish POWs, were returned? How many were taken? How many returned home? Um, how many were never heard from again? And what was the, let's say, the, the situation with, uh, with POWs more generally? So, uh, yeah, this is uh, one aspect that's uh, that's a bit different from uh, most of the uh, most of the wars at this time, because the um, uh, Finnish uh, fighting spirit and uh, the Finnish general success in defensive fighting was such that uh, there there weren't really encirclement battles of uh, where, where the Finns were encircled and, and captured in any any sort of scale, but uh, still, obvi obviously, there were 
Uh, apologies, my voice is, stimming, st- uh, is becoming to give out. I don't know why after three hours. But uh, uh, so because when there's fighting occurring, especially hand-to-hand combat, and uh, in the beginning there were some more quicker advances of uh, Soviet forces, and there was a specific part of the uh, national border at the time where there was this sa- natural salient. I don't know whose bright idea it was that uh, there would be this kind of uh, strut out to out to the Soviet territory, which was finished. This called, so-called Hurslan Mutka, uh, where for some some troops were captured, but only a couple of border guards. But I mean, the total is that uh, about a thousand Finns were taken prisoner. But uh, and uh, but on the Soviet side, uh, the number of uh, captured uh, Red Army soldiers was only around 5,000. So uh, there was, in these these motis, in these encirclement battles, there there weren't really, you you, you would say that there weren't these mass surrenders, because uh, one one was that uh, the the doctrine on, in the Red Army, due to due to political officers and uh, due to uh, decades of uh, uh, political uh, heavy-handed ideologic training, was that uh, I mean, especially if you go far north, the conditions were such that uh, they didn't have time to surrender; they froze to death. And uh, most often than not, if the encirclement was about to fold, they often tried to charge out en masse and were killed. So uh, the number of prisoners was surprisingly low. It was there were much more prisoners in the in the continuation war. But uh, as as so far as the uh, uh, Finnish prisoners go. Uh, I don't actually recall specifically about about the Winter War prisoners, but the, it was the process of returning them. I mean, uh, as as far as we know, all the all the Soviet prisoners who who were immediately returned, they were either shot or sent sent to Siberia, but. Uh, it took time for the Finnish prisoners to to, uh, to come back, and not all of them did. And uh, when they did, they were, uh, well, they were, shall we say, shook up. It it wasn't uh, all shook up. Well, I I would say that the uh, sometimes we're referring to the Geneva Convention, but uh, you know the Red Army was was. Uh, its interpretation of Geneva Convention was similar to that of uh, the current Moscovy regime. What, what did the Red Army do with Finnish prisoners when found? Well, they were uh, they were severely uh, interrogated. Uh, I must say that this is one aspect that I'm not. I'm not an expert deep enough to be able to, uh, or not comfortable enough to uh, give a full account. But uh, uh, the condition, conditions of uh, of their 
captivity were less than healthy. Uh, there wasn't enough food. The uh, living conditions were awful, and they were there were let's just say that there were severe attempts to try and make them turn and serve in one way or another, I, either to spy if if they were dangled with, with release or uh, to serve as uh, to try and give give information on. Uh, Finnish troop movements to pinpoint defensive positions and so forth. And uh, yeah, I mean, it it wasn't pretty. So the anecdotal um, say evidence that Finnish soldiers were then stripped, if not executed right on on site, but were stripped, tied to trees, and poured uh, water upon, uh, is something which has actually continued throughout the Second World War and how, for example, Estonians were, Latvians and Lithuanians were treated during winter just as well. Yes, I mean, uh, the thing is that that it's somehow, even after centuries of uh, similar history, it's still hard to fathom that some things don't change. But, uh, yeah, I mean, some things don't change. If you go back to the 15th century, 16th century, 18th century, the treatment of prisoners when they fall into uh, Moscovy captivity, I mean, can you say that it has changed in those centuries? Not at all, on the contrary. They've just yeah. affected the art of being um, war criminals. Yeah, exactly. Domin, shall we go to Miko? Let's. Yeah, I just want to add to Axel's question, what happened to many Finnish war prisoners? So I know a couple of battles in Vipuri when we once again lost it in 44. Uh, they were they were like, uh, I read the book and, you know, heard the stories and, you know, some of the Finnish patrols, they were hiding in the in the in the library and in the Vipuri's library downstairs. And, you know, then they then, you know, Soviets just overran them and then they had to surrender. And, the wounded ones, uh, you know, Soviets just told them, you know, leave them, leave them, put them on the ground. And the guys just walked by and then, you know, they just heard a burst of, burst of fire from submachine guns and basically, basically executed everybody there. And then, then they are like the, the regiment actually, which defended Viburi, you know, that re regiment was never discovered, you know, who, who left there. They were, they were all, all, all executed there. And, yeah, and then my 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 grandfather actually who's still alive, he's hundred and one. His brother died in forty four, uh, in Valkeasari, which was close to St. Petersburg, and he says that uh, he was told that uh, his 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 brother's name was Mikko as well and then he, he got wounded and 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 was not able to fight anymore and then tank just came and just rolled over and that's it. So, you know, that's that's how the Russians and Soviets, you know, treat you know, wounded and uh, you know, prisoners of war. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. But uh, I, uh, I can, I can take a couple of questions. But then, then I really must be must be going to that to my next engagement. So if there are more questions, then I'll I'll try and answer answer uh, some before I need to go. I think uh, Kuliki has a question for you, and then Miko can uh, have the last one. How about that, Kuliki? Go ahead. Am I still audible? 
You are still Odubo Ante. I don't know if I am, but I'm trying to get to Kuli. Oh, sorry. To, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I forgot. I I forgot to put my mic on last time. I, it was left on and I made some noise. I didn't, I wanted to say thank you so much to Auntie. I've learned a lot. Um, I didn't have a question. I did want to add some information about, um, life during that time, but I don't want to take away from your time if people wanted to ask some questions. I know I see Miko's hand up. I would like to add something in general later about how life was during the war. Um, my mom lived through it. My All my aunts and uncles lived through it. Um, but you wanted to take some questions. I can wait. Yeah, I mean, there's even though it was, a, historically speaking, it was a rather brief war, but uh, there are so many. I mean, even though this, this has been three hours, there's so many aspects I haven't touched at all. So uh, ho- hopefully you, everyone had, had a, has been able to take a good general uh, outline of what took place and why but uh, there are so many so many t- different aspects that uh, deserve their uh, their own handling that uh, there simply hasn't been uh, time to so yeah no i'm not i'm not criticizing at all i just wanted to add some uh, information but how about i just put the mic off and then mikko can answer ask his question yeah, and I didn't take it as a criticism. I okay. I just wanted to make note of that. Yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah, I just uh, want to go a little bit back to Lake Ladoka, 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 how we ever say it. You know, north of Lake Ladoka is a place called Kolla, which is now, of course, in, in Russian side. But there was one famous Finnish sniper who operated in Kolla and Joki. Then you, Antti, mentioned that. Yeah, Simo, Simo, how I know I, I didn't mention that, uh, nor did I mention the fact that uh, both Kolla and Taipale were two places that held, where the front line held throughout the entire war, which was uh, like a saying that uh, Kolla holds, Taipale holds. Uh, those were uh, uh, successful key, also successful defensive battle places. But yeah, I mean, Simo Hauha is the most uh, successful sniper of all time. and. Uh, even though he did use a submachine gun as well, but um, most of the uh, most of the damage he did was uh, with a with a Finnish uh, modified uh, Mosinnakant uh, single shot uh, bolt action rifle without any uh, special special scopes of any kind. So I mean, he's a legend. Yeah, I think the m- number of kills was something around 500, and uh, even though it's Russians uh, did generally refer to Finns as uh, the White Death, but it's really if there's a personification, it's it's Simo Hauha. He was he was the White Death. Well, thank you very much, Antti. Thank you for uh, for giving us three hours. I think uh, Mikko and anything else will want to uh, add a little bit to this. Uh, but, but thank you very much, Antti. Can you not hear me anymore? Well, that's because my app is glitching. Great. Um, Auntie, Axel, Auntie, if you can hear me, I don't hear anything, so My maybe I'm with her box. Auntie, can you hear me? Apparently. Okay, I'll I'll uh, I cycle I'll cycle cycle down and come back up again. Yeah, I just removed him. Let's uh, get him back up. <laughs> I will need to drop and come back because my app is glitching badly. And, Do that. Uh, I'll be back in a few minutes. All right. Okay. And in the meantime, Kiriki. 
Yes, I was really, really interested to hear um, all the history about um, the Winter War. I've heard a little bit about it, um, read a bit about it. Um, my background is, my, you can see from my name, it's uh, Finnish. Um, but I was um, brought up, I was born and brought up in Canada. But my mom um, was in that area, in, in Karjala. That's the area that was taken over eventually from from the Finns, and, and um, she was 10 years old at the time when the war started. So, I mean, I've, I've heard some stories, but that I would like to just share a little bit about what life was like um, during that time. Um, so she was 10 years old. Um, they had to go outside. Um, she said when they had to wear masks that my my grandmother, uh, her mom had, had made them the, some homemade masks where they had to put, it wasn't very clear what she said, but like kind of like coal when it was finished, um, burning, um, the, just the, the, the leftovers of, of maybe it was wood also, but they would put them in between two, um, in a mask between two layers of, of cloth. And they would have to wear those when they went outside, uh, to play in case there was, um, poisonous gas that was being released and that was either either true or they thought it was going to be so they they made these kind of homemade masks to go out to play um my mom remembers being at school and um they had heard airplanes coming to drop bombs and they would have to run into the woods and, and hide and then come back out when the planes left um, my, her sister, her oldest sister was one of the, uh, Lotta. And I looked up what that meant because I keep hearing that, that word, um, now and then. It was a woman's <clears throat> voluntary defense corps that was, um, based on a character in a poem by a very famous Finnish poet, Runeberg, who was Swedish, Swedish Finnish. And, um, it said, it's a, it's a shortened word from the word Charlotte, and Charlotte means free woman. So it's kind of interesting. Um, anyway, so my my aunt, her sister, um, at the age of 16, 17, would stay up at nights, <clears throat> sorry, stay up at nights um, in a watchtower, taking turns with other other older teens. And they would stay up during the night and watch for planes. And then they would give alarms when, uh, when the planes would come to the town who was, or the people outside. My, my mom was living on a farm. They would give the uh, signals that planes were coming just to be aware. Um, so my mom had to leave. Her family had to leave, um, just before the winter war, 1939. And just briefly, her life and, and many, many others, the other 400,000 who had to, had to leave from that area, Karyala, which is now taken over, um, by Russia from the age of 10 to 16. I mean, huge formative years. She was a refugee in her own country, just as many Ukrainians, if we're going to make the parallels to Many Ukrainians are also refugees within their own country, um, and they had to they had to find a way to live to support themselves. Um, there was a government train, first of all, to take the people out, so they did have a chance to to pile on. But like in the beginning, when the a lot of Ukrainians were leaving, um, we saw many images of all the 
um, suitcases that wouldn't fit that were left on the train platforms and they were just you know they, they were just lucky to get out and the same thing um, happened with my my mom's family they packed as many things as they could but not everything could be put on and it was much more important to save people of course than items um, so then uh, it happened twice they they were evacuated um, they had to find um, places to live um, there are good and maybe not so kind people everywhere um, they there were people who took Finns in um, there were people who also were very um, frustrated that they had to take extra people in and feed them um, so there was some resentment also um, my mom and her older sister by a couple of years uh, remember going to school and being made fun of for their accents by the teacher not only the kids but the teacher um, who made fun of their education who made fun of their their accents um, who made fun of their poverty so just kind of surprising that during a war in the same country um, sometimes there are people who are very very supportive and sometimes there aren't um, so just to point out that life was um, kind of difficult um, for people who left that area I just have a couple more points I won't take too long That's all right. um, during my uh, during that time where they were in the first uh, time that they had left they were somewhere in the north of kind of middle north of uh, Finland uh, called Keuru um, there's actually um, a cemetery now I think for Evakot Evakot is uh, refugees a refugees cemetery and then there are the people from that town and that's where my grandfather her, her father is, is buried um, he was fighting at the front but then he caught pneumonia and he did join his family and they had to find some way to survive um, they had to chop wood and, and the, the my mom and her sister were helping others were doing other things like uh, working for other families taking care of uh, cows and and the animals and so on so this is just one family's um, one one family story but everyone else I mean nobody had money everybody had to just take whatever they could carry and and leave um, my my grandfather her father eventually died of pneumonia he had come back sick and he died there in Keuru and um, that's why I know about that cemetery and um, then the continuation well then they they were able to go back and then eventually they had to had to leave again for forever um, then when they came back the second time they had gone home and uh, came back and they and the people were still the 400,000 they had to find a way to survive just as Ukrainians do now um, they need to find some way to make money or some somehow to earn money and that's why a lot of people when we take a look at the news some of the older people they stay where they are even they, they though they could have evacuated because they have a place where they can grow vegetables and so on they still have to eat um, they can't they don't really have anywhere to go 
Um, so the uh, Finns, my my mom's family, uh, the the kids were had to be fed somehow, so they were given jobs. They were my grandmother found them jobs at different families who were better established, and they took care of the you know cows at one place or babysat the kids in another place. So they were they would just were kind of they lived in in other families, and then they made some money and and then sent it home or. Uh, to my to my mom who had a smaller brother younger kid at home um let's see what else did i want to say so yeah so for my mom's um part um i guess she grew up six years of her formative life was just as a refugee she really didn't have any roots from for somebody coming from finland she didn't really have roots in her country and eventually they were given a piece of land um well they had some land it was a long story but something with that they had land and it was transferred um the plot of land so they started to build another house toward the west of finland but it was something that it was an area that for my mom i suppose she you know it was just another part of the country and she chose at the age of 21 to try you know go to canada and just see what there was and and uh and then she ended up staying and and uh met my dad who was also an estonian refugee and and he left at the age of 17 and he had also said because they had they were taken over by by russia and then germany and then russia that as auntie had said that uh, they much more preferred the germans than than the russians because the germans were a little bit more civil um compared to the russians and um yeah so my my her brother her oldest brother was also fighting in the war and and he there were a lot there was a lot of psychological trauma for a lot of people as as happens all over the world when when men come home from now men and women but at that time men come home from from fighting and they've seen so much violence that her brother ended up being for most of his life just a wanderer he couldn't settle down a lot of drinking um and when we see a lot of people um some older people now i even in estonia finland um who spend a lot of their lives drinking there is there's a lot of psychological dra- trauma that happens um for soldiers and um one thing that i really really admire about olena zelensky is zelenska is that she started talking earlier about ukrainians um who will be needing a lot of psychological support she said that we can't rebuild a country once we win and once we start rebuilding we cannot rebuild a country when we're all broken uh we need to have psychological uh support and help um and it's a society that does not really regards psychological help as something that is it regards it with suspicion like you know you must be that old kind of you know you must be crazy if you need need psychological help um so just i guess i wanted to say that to to give a little bit of an idea of um what happened at that time in the winter war it's a it's a i mean i'm very proud of what the Finns were able to do and and hold off uh for so for quite a long time with almost no weapons and and being 
quite the minority. Um, but the other side also was that there were a lot of um, traumatized people from that area, as, as would be from any anywhere in the world. And that will be mm, probably 100 times more so uh, in Ukraine. Uh, once they win, it will be wonderful to rebuild. But the biggest support that they would need would be, mm, I guess, psychological and, and caring and, and kindness. And I don't know. So anyway, that's thank you for listening. I just wanted to add that bit. I was really interested um, when Auntie started speaking about the Winter War. And I didn't really know. I don't really know about the history because I was I was brought up in, in Canada. Thank you for listening. Always a pleasure having you with us, Kalika. Yeah, so I I really there was there was some glitching involved, but uh, I really unless there's like a really final final question, uh, I, I can uh, I, or or I really need to go. So, uh... Andy, I have many questions, but I'll ask you another time. Okay. It's specifically to do with uh, you know Soviet approaches to information warfare in uh, yeah. against against Finland at the time. So maybe that's a you know give give you a heads up separate prep. Yeah. Um, Pauli, if you have a, a very short question for Antti before uh, he runs out of words for the week. This is the last last remark and question. Um, and thank you, Antti. This was excellent. The question is when's part three coming up? Oh Lord. Uh... I mean, uh, I don't know. That's that's the uh, that's that's the honest answer. I don't know what kind of uh, what kind of um, you know need or uh, value you would consider for something something uh, about this Finnish history of this period. Then uh, I would uh, naturally try to uh, see if I can. Uh, I can see, see, uh, speak on the subject, but uh, I, I do hope to uh, continue contributing to this wonderful and awesome, awesome space. If it's of any use to uh, our uh, brothers and sisters in Ukraine, so uh, yeah, I think it was wonderful, and thank you very much, Auntie, for uh, obliging my request. After having obliged Axel's request of six months ago, six and a half months ago. Uh, no, but you know, you got absolutely rave reviews, and by rave I mean uh, uh, stayed and measured, uh, and and it's it's great. It's really it's really fantastic to you know spend some time looking at some historical parallels, and I think we identified many. We could have identified many more still. Yes, many had more. Time to go more in depth, and it's uh, uh, it's really sometimes. Uh, an illustration, a, a desirable and, and wanted illustration of just how much uh, history can repeat itself. Yeah, but uh, thank you uh, for my part as well. And uh, if there's any anyone who actually uh, listened to that from uh, beginning to end, then I, I salute I you. Because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and also uh, the space didn't glitch out un until the very end, so that was uh, also a very good sign. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you very much, Auntie. Go uh, go to the bookstore now and uh, you know, replenish yeah. your words for next week. Okay, but thank you so much. Hasn't the icicle farming season already begun? I mean, have you seen the card, Axel? Have you seen the wonderful card we got, Auntie? I did, I did. 
So I was just wondering, Andy, you have the weekend off right at the beginning of the season? Yes, yes, and next next week it's it's farming galore. But uh <laughs> kiitos, kiitos, kiitos ja Slava Ukraini. Hello and Slava.